May all the bad films be forgot. See Lewin Davis from inside. Even if you didn't see her or anything on David's list, it's top ten podcast time. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room's inaugural fourth annual. Uh, top 10 list episode <laughs> podcast. Uh, this is going to be a long one, so we're going to hurry right along. Here's how it's going to work. I will be your host for this evening. We have all made top 10 lists. We are going in the order of David Ehrlich, Dave with a 7, myself, Katie Rich, and Matt Patches. Uh, Do you no longer use a last name? Uh, I don't have <laughs> to. Phase that into out share. completely. Seven yeah. is just all you need? Okay. I mean, try Googling. You don't even need a last name. How does your family feel names. about that? You use abandoned Gonzalez. What uh, other what? numbers does your family have in there? While we were handing out presents, everybody was like, oh, not riding with the seven this year? And I'm like, well, you're my family. And then I got a whole bunch of gifts to Dave with the seven. Aww. So it's wow. deep in my family, uh, just like it's wow. deep in you listeners, because you are my family as well. <laughs> Mom Aww. with a zero. That's right. <laughs> Mom with a zero. <laughs> She'd love that. Anyway, uh, so yeah, we're going to go 10 to 1 in that order. Uh, everybody, if they introduce a new movie, kind of gets to talk about why, and I'll let you know where you can find us in our other classic podcasts, which will be linked around fightinginthewarroom.com. Your number one place to go for everything, all four of us. Let's kick it off. We're going to do a little bit of preambles, just to give the list some context, because it's not always best films. Sometimes it's just films you like, or in the case of David, films you haven't seen yet. So let's talk to David Ehrlich about his, if he has any disclaimers or notes on his uh, top ten. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that we would be getting such a lovely opportunity. Uh, but I will say that, that one of the downsides of doing my annual lists in the fashion that I do, which is to make a, a video uh, before we do this episode, is that I feel sort of locked in to my opinions, and it feels like betraying this, this video if I uh, have any changes in my opinion. Uh, and so I'm not going to deviate from that for the purposes of this list. But I will say that uh, one Yeah, that movie... would be George Lucasing your <laughs> film. <laughs> right. But one, one movie in particular that has come out very recently continues to grow in my estimation. And I think that if I made the list uh, maybe a year or two from now, it would, would probably weasel its way into the top ten uh, rather high. And that's The Wait, Wolf, what, what the wolf of that? Wall Street. Oh. The Wolf well, of Wall Street. I think we might be talking about I'm that I'm sure episode. we will, but uh, <laughs> I, let me, if we're, we're doing disclaimers, let me just say that uh, I, a part of me, a growing part of me, regrets that that is not on my top ten. And I think uh, just know that if it does appear on others, I will echo that sentiment. 
Excellent. I'm next on the rotation, and uh, this year I didn't get to see things that I really wanted to see, like her or Active Killing, either because of laziness or availability. So I just decided to make a top ten movies that actually spoke to me. So it's they're all strangely personal picks. Uh, there's probably going to be things that uh, you don't personally agree with because you're like, well, obviously this movie was better, and yeah, maybe it was a better movie, but it's not going to be on my list because it's all about me. This year. As it should be. It should be. That's Amen. right. We're going to go back Katie? to the favorites best argument. No. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I keep looking at my list and surprising myself by the order in which I rank them. It almost feels like an entirely arbitrary order, save for a couple of them. And then uh, the other night I rewatched Captain Phillips, and that movie's really good. And I left it off my top 10 for no real reason, and now I kind of regret. But I don't know what I would throw out. Um, and there's various other movies that I'll probably think of as the top 10 goes along that. I feel bad about leaving out. Like a lot of people, I felt like there was an embarrassment of riches and it was hard to organize myself. And I wish there were more blockbusters on there, but it was a crappy year for blockbusters, save White House Down, which I still love, but did not make my list. I've seen many people put on their number one worst movie. I know. People are crazy. And people who think Olympus has fallen is better are maniacs and probably sociopaths. American Hustle Review guest Eric Cohn lists White House Down as his number one most hated film wow he oh. i feel bad for eric Cohn. he lives in a not to call him out he's a, an expert he lives well i mean but you world. did that's exactly <laughs> what you did sorry eric <laughs> patches any disclaimers um well whereas katie says that her list might be in an arbitrary order i'm positive mine is <laughs> um i really i was looking at all the movies i'd seen this year and i just have a very difficult time ordering them in terms of like i guess the impact or, or the, the cinema on display. Um, so I really, yeah, I had to go with my gut and what, what punched me there over the course of the year. I feel probably better prepared to write my top 10 list for 2003 now than I am for uh, 2013, <laughs> which might be fun. So it's all Seabiscuit, um, right? Because it's hard to, like, contextualize a year and, and say what lasts and, you know, have the room to meditate on something to be able to do this kind of list. Yeah. Um, and I like I like ranking. And I like lists just as a contextualization tool. But uh, I, I don't know if right now I'm going to give a list of movies that makes sense. So I'll go with what I put. And uh, and and a year from now, weeks from now, it might change. So excellent. Maybe we could do a top ten movies of 2003 during the I Frankenstein week. That might be fun. That might <laughs> no, be fun. I'm really looking forward to I Frankenstein. So let's let's. Whoa. Oh, how are you? All right. Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. Well, let's kick uh, this episode off like we always do with a pick that David has that's not on anybody else's list. Yeah. David, number 10. Is that a tradition? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> nice to be. Uh, all right. Well, uh, my number 10 pick is a film by Carlos Regadas, a Mexican filmmaker who previously made films like Silent Light uh, and Battle, for, Battle of Heaven, not Battle for Heaven. Uh, and it is called Post Tenebra Lux. Which is uh, <laughs> definitely a little bit of a strange one. It's the kind of movie that um, the press notes begin with the word ostensibly. <laughs> I feel like it's a good way of contextualizing sort of uh, how this movie approaches narrative. It's very sort of abstract uh, in a way that is much much less linear, or at least – uh, ostensibly, ostensibly uh, less linear than Regatta's previous films. It is, uh, for all intents and purposes, about a strapping Mexican uh, family man of the elite class who relocates his family from the city to a house in the country and uh, is there consumed by a, a tender and memory-tinged 
brand of violence. Um, it involves uh, the devil, who is a deliberately phony-looking, glowy CG beast thing with a toolbox and probably represents male id more than anything else. There's a great Neil Young digression. There is a guy ripping off his own head and some rugby scenes set in England, perhaps, that I'm still trying to contextualize. But uh, it is uh, a really beautiful, beautiful film. The first sequence alone is one of the most beautiful things I saw on a movie screen this year, and I was fortunate enough to see this on a movie screen, which did help a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really the story of a guy who's a bit of a brute and wants to be better, a better person and a better father and a better husband uh and it's just an inquiry into i think the male being and condition in in a a really sort of raw way but it's very sentimental as well somehow i think that the one of regatta's gifts is finding a way to get to emotion via um the inexplicable and the uh hyper violent uh and there's like a great orgy scene which has very pretentious illusions you really should have led with the orgy scene yeah, yeah there's a great orgy scene in this movie <laughs> um, uh yeah it's it's i think it's on netflix right now actually it def- so, yes it is yeah. well. so but uh, if, if you have a, an evening to yourself and and have the time to give over to it it's not a film to be watched with one eye on something else you really have to sort of sit back and, and let it happen but uh well, what what language is it in? It's in Spanish. Right. So if you're an English speaker only, you really can't. Yeah. Right. Uh, double. <laughs> Both eyes. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's uh, it's great. I, I I would recommend. You know, I went into much greater detail on on film.com. You can Google my name and film and post an Everoth Lux, and you'll find my review. And if that doesn't convince you or compel you to give it a shot, then then it's lost on then, you. Goodbye. <laughs> Go to hell. I don't know. Then uh, I don't know if it's going to be for you. Not that there isn't better writing on it out there, but it's certainly going to be more articulate than I'm being here. But anyway, Post in Lux by Carlos Regatas, my number 10 of the year. Numero. Boom. Moving right along, my number 10 is Zero Charisma, which was a very small movie about D&D by uh, directors Katie Graham and Andrew Matthews. Andrew Matthews also wrote it, but basically what I really like about this movie is the performance by Sam Edison, who plays Scott, who is this uh, slightly overweight uh, man-child who is really into Dungeons & Dragons at the expense of his social life. And this movie is a character study of him and what happens when a hipster named Miles sort of elbows in on his game and uh, his life and how that's just (laughs) enough to sort of tug at the thread of his sweater that unravels to do a Weezer reference. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it because it's a personal way of talking about geekdom to other geeks that is very recognizable, both if you are, you know, an old school heavy metal poster, D&D pen and paper RPG person, or if you're a uh, blogger who is just discovering uh, pen and paper, like our own uh, Matt Patches. I was about to say, are you calling me out here? <laughs> I mean, I did I, not have heavy metal posters on my wall. It's true. I was not into it. But the character Miles, who's like a film blogger who comes to join the game, is you. You, you totally... I am not that guy. I'm not... I was about to say that <laughs> I can understand the hipster intrusion into geekdom. I don't, I don't find myself to be that guy. Well, I don't think that I'm Miles not successful is a negative... enough to be him. I don't think Miles is necessarily a bad guy, but it definitely sounds like you know, you rolled into somebody's game and Wait, maybe maybe you caused your own zero charisma. He's portrayed as a successful film blogger? That's an oxymoron. 
Well, he also has side projects, and he does a lot with his life. His yeah. girlfriend's kind of hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just basically seems to be uh, more successful in a threatening way to S- Sam Edison's character. So, uh, yeah, I would say check out Zero Charisma. Uh, I've said it before on our classic episode 114, which will be linked to at fightingintheworldroom.com. Katie? Oh, boy. Um, I felt really good when I put Pain and Gain at number 10 on my list when A.O. Scott basically did the same thing. He listed The Great Gatsby, Wolf of Wall Street, The Bling Ring, Spring Breakers, Pain and Gain, and American Hustle as one Yuna movie about the American dream and grab what you want and who you can and do whatever feels good. We're all going to hell or jail or Florida anyway. Um, What I like so much about Pain and Gain is that it's a Michael Bay movie about how you should never live your life as if it's a Michael Bay movie. And I don't know that he's earned the right to do that kind of satire on his own because he's made so many damagingly terrible movies in his life. But he does so many smart things with this movie and casting and the way that it's shot and in the I mean, he's always used his camera in really interesting ways, and he does it to the extreme here, and both identifies with the dumb worldviews of his dumb characters by, like, ogling female bodies and making fun of fat people, but makes fun of them at the same time. And he does things like casting Ed Harris that lets you know where the side of the movie is going to wind up on, and he gets this amazing performance out of The Rock, who had a lot of, he had a really good uh, year, and this is his best performance. The, the Rock. I said The Rock, didn't I? I thought you said A Rock. A Rock. <laughs> that would be Mark Wahlberg in the role of A Rock. No. Well, if he has kids, then they're little rocks. There's multiple rocks. <laughs> I want The Rock to have kids. I want him to repopulate Pebbles. the world. Um, I just I was so entertained by this movie and also Repulse, which is kind of the point. I just like seeing I, – I kind of always felt that Michael Bay was a smart guy. I don't think this is a rare opinion. I think it's proof – and even in his worst movies, there's interesting things going on. But I feel like this proves that he's aware of his own – style and the world he's created and he can use that to make a story that makes fun of that while also letting you have the weird thrills of being part of this completely disgusting amoral world and i just i was so impressed by the way that it towed that line and the way that it was really funny and also kind of punished them but then i think someone tweeted that they thought that pain and gain is the result of someone seeing one of jordan belfort's uh, the main character in wolf of wall street seeing one of his seminars which is completely perfect it's like exactly that was our that was our friend brandon oh, it was Brandon. yeah it's a completely perfect way to look at it it's all part of this system that makes the world that we live in and these guys just happen to have done it more violently and ridiculously than most people who try to just get their hands on a ton of money so pain and gain really entertaining if you're uh, disgusted by it it's kind of the point but try and see past it to what's really clever about it Yes. I don't think anything can ever make up for the trauma of Revenge of the Fallen, though. I mean, that movie is horrifying. Dark of of the Moon already made up for the trauma. I know. How happy are you? Did you put Dark of the Moon on your top 25 last year? Oh, my God. No, because, I mean, mostly because it didn't come out last year. Oh, is it two years ago? (laughs) How time flies. (laughs) But uh, it wasn't too far off making that my list two years ago. You could find our pain and gain review on our 111 classic episode, and <laughs> I happen to be on that one. So hey, Dave saw the rarity. movie. Take a shot. That's right, Dave saw the movie. Take a shot. Patches, you have uh, the first of two uh, double spots, I believe, for your number ten. For me? No, just in the show. Oh, other people have tied movies. There is one person that has another tied movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I'm cheating, but I for some reason when I was kind of going over. All the movies I'd seen this year, these two um, 
felt thematically connected to me, or actually more like craft through craft they connect. Um, and they would be uh, the past by Asgar Farhadi, which I'm probably pronouncing it correctly. And um, Nicole Holland suffers enough said. I can't Holof pronounce his name. Holof Center. This happened when we reviewed the damn movie too. <laughs> In 2014, I will pronounce Nicole Holof Center's name correctly. Um, for me, both these movies, I mean, they're they're wildly different. One is about um, clashing relationships, and one is about nurturing and growing a new one. Um, but I was so moved by the performances in these films. I think actually, when the when I saw the past at Cannes, Katie, I was telling you about how I was kind of it, the movie took my breath away because it's it, they're not showy performances, but the tension is there. Just people having conversations and having to kind of live in the atmosphere of the of the world that they've created, their choices, and kind of culminating in this moment, this reunion where you know um, Bernice Bejo, Bernice Marie. Oh, come on. <laughs> and um it's just not my game. And then um she she plays this woman whose husband is returning from Iran to Paris um four years after they kind of uh went different ways and um you know they were married and they have she has daughters from another previous marriage and they have a son but now she's dating another man and it's all kind of getting mixed up and I've seen a few reviews say that maybe um Farhadi was is kind of throwing all sorts of twists and bumps in the road that seem pulled out his ass and um, it, it rings a little false. But for me, I don't know. The foundation was there without having to have any foundation where this can all kind of emerge slowly from the conversations they have, the interactions. And, you know, sometimes those arguments escalate. Uh, Beho erupts and, and is a loud, maybe potentially showy performance, but it never feels that way. It really feels just grounded in reality, and that reality can be so unnerving that someone is able to mirror real life in that way. Um, and then in a more comfortable way, I thought Enough Said did the exact same thing, to see these two people, Julie Louise Dreyfus's Ava and um, James Gandolfini's Albert, have – I mean be normal people, people that I, I guess I can't intrinsically relate to because they're older than me. They're both divorced. But they're so normal and, and so comfortable with each other and how that organically becomes a relationship. Um, that just really struck me too. It's so sweet and so natural and Nicole has such an ear for that dialogue and those real life scenarios where those kind of that kind of love can brew. Um I felt I thought it was a charming movie and the kind of movie that doesn't get enough praise because it's so simple. And I think the past may fall into the same trap. It hasn't been out very long and it's not playing in many places right now. It's certainly not part of the awards conversation, um, which dominates at this time. I felt like the perception uh, was that it was a, a good bit weaker than a separation. I haven't seen it. Do you, do you I guess that works against him, but I mean it's a different type of movie and, and both are I wouldn't say either are really low key because they're dealing with momentous emotional, you know, curveballs. But um, you don't mean they're that they're grounded. You don't mean that they're a different type of movie because a separation was good. Ooh. Oh <laughs> uh, well, we're gonna we're just gonna stab me in the chest. Uh, <laughs> well, I loved it. David did not, but I would highly recommend seeing it now that it's out in theaters. And of course, I I adore Enough Said. Um, Katie's with me. On yeah, that I really movie. like Enough Said. Oh, Enough Said's terrific. Okay, yes, good. we do have so a review episode. That's what for I that. get. That's what I get for a tie. I get one good one and one David hates. So hopefully, <laughs> that's now I need to go back and have a tie average. for each one of my picks because I'm sure it's going to go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's going to be good because if we're going to stay in the mood for David's number nine pick, he would say absolutely nothing at all. Ooh, David. <laughs> Uh, my number nine pick is a documentary, not the latest, but a recent 
film from Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab, who is doing increasingly uh, fascinating work in the documentary field. Um, and it is Leviathan by Lucien Castang Taylor and Verena Paravel. Uh, and essentially what this film is, I think we've talked about it on the show before, uh, and I know I'm not the only fan, is they took a, uh, a boat, uh, a fishing vessel, uh, which I should know the name of but don't, and stuck a bunch of GoPro cameras all around the hull of the ship, on the, some of the fish carcasses themselves, uh, on every part of the ship that you can imagine, and created this incredibly, you know, cataclysmic, chaotic portrait of life and, and the, the machine that is not only the fishing vessel itself, but sort of the entire industry that it feeds and the human element involved in that. And the sense of verisimilitude that it creates is really astonishing and not simply because of this you-are-there immediacy that the GoPros provide, although that's certainly a part of it, but really the tapestry with which they weave it together, uh, you really get a feel for the entire ecosystem of this place in a way that sort of feels like death metal uh, in a way. Like it's, death uh, metal? It, yeah, I mean, it's like this very hardcore experience. It's cold and, and relentless, and uh, there is sort of no shelter from the elements and from this sort of – the overwhelming force this like that it feels like that sort of music almost i mean there's no score in the traditional sense like there's like a death metal score but if, if there's like a cinematic equivalent of, of metal music this sort of feels like it to me but interesting uh, so i wish they would have put that on the poster I <laughs> you might have gone jet uh, out I don't think I'm the first person to make that observation. So there could be something on there. Maybe it was on the poster. I don't know if it was on the poster. But um, they, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty astonishing movie from the people who brought you Sweetgrass and more recently Monica Mana. Um, and it's uh, it, it's also maybe on Netflix. And I know a beautiful Blu-ray is out. This was something that was really worth seeing in the theaters. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to. But uh, even on my uh, display at home was pretty phenomenal um and yeah i think it's uh, one of the most exciting things that's happening in documentary with people at harvard sensory ethnography lab are doing so i would strongly if you're if you're looking for things that are not you know incredibly didactic horrific filmmaking uh, of issue-based movies uh like blackfish and things like that <laughs> Come uh, on. Boy. this is blackfish is a terrific why do you movie. hate whales uh, so much david <laughs> Uh, well, any of those documentaries, really. I mean, I'm just I'm so sick of these. Uh, they're not cinema. I mean, it's like an argument on film. It's not the same thing. Um, and Leviathan really sort of restores. Uh, and uh, what the Harvard's ethnography, sensory ethnography lab is doing is really restoring the cinema to the documentary form. Uh, they're not the only ones, but they are certainly reliable in doing that. So Leviathan, check it out. Yes. Hold in your head that David said you, an argument on film is not a movie for later on on somebody's list. Ooh. But we're going to jump to my number nine, which is the other tied spot, which is Dave's turned 29 and has one year left before he's 30. So he's going to put the world's end and this is the end in his number nine spot. Oh, boy. To talk about man children uh, dealing with the apocalypse and whether that be a metaphorical apocalypse or an actual apocalypse like it is in the movie the metaphorical one was my life um it's they're both two very i think well-made movies the world's end is uh, one of those movies that's a uh, um of course simon Pegg, nick frost and the cornetto trilogy so it's got that writing on it but it's also a really well-structured movie that i kept finding new things about like the bars mm -hmm. are named after what happens in the bar and like the more you see this movie the more it comes together as like a tight narrative piece uh with some really i think 
interesting action directing um, in terms of how they use the space and all the characters and, you know, weird bar things and outlandish alien fights. On the other end of the spectrum is This is the End, which I would say is the most Ghostbuster-ish comedy we got this year, uh, where it's just a whole bunch of uh, people who are famous for other things uh, making a sort of situation comedy where they're forced into the apocalypse. So if uh, Danny McBride's your thing, you got a whole bunch of that. If Jonah Hill's your thing, you got a whole bunch of that. Is uh, Michael Sarah being a coke addict is your thing. There's enough of that. And of course, the wonderful Emma Watson. Um, but at the end, it is sort of about, uh, you know, when one of your friends uh, grows up to be James Franco's best buddy and you're Jay Baruchel and sort of feel out of place in this new world. So Dave coping with his aging through comedy is my number nine. The world's end. Oh this is the end. Dual Such spot. sadness. You're not the only person who's talked about that, though, with the, especially with the world's end. Yeah. I, this is the end is just one of those movies where it's like that is more realistically how my generation would handle it. And the world's end is really sad about a slightly older man child, which I hope I don't become, but I feel like I have to give this movie another chance. I was kind of like, so, so on the world's end in a way that it seems not everyone was. It It definitely, I, it grew on me as well. I mean, I was, uh, I walked out of it thinking that it was a step below the other Cornetto films, but over time, um, I definitely warmed to it and realized just, uh, I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot more going on in this film than uh, certainly the hot fuzz, which I love. Um, and I think it just it took some time to really appreciate everything it was doing, especially because it takes such wild turns that can leave you a little bit. It, feel, it feels really like right. there might be more movie there. I just thought it was like really rushed. I, I, I like the characters. I mean, I think there is more movie folded inside of itself, which is why it hmm. really flowered for me on a second viewing. Hmm. But it's a very sure movie, which is always nice to see, I think. Well, Edgar Wright's movies are all like that. They all feel like he knows exactly everything he wants to be happening at the given time. Yeah, Ant-Man's going to be awesome, isn't it? But I guess we have years to talk about that. <laughs> so let's... Dave is going to oh, murder God. you if you try to start talking about Marvel movies right now. <laughs> let's, Especially let's... in the middle of talking about how good a movie he just made is. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's go to Katie's number nine. Oh, so this is the movie that... Patches and I walked out of at Sundance and immediately had to go like drink red wine and live inside it. It's Stoker, which completely got forgotten by a lot of people. And a lot of people didn't like it because it's kind of. I've seen it on worst of lists. I know. It's that and pain and gain. I'm really, I usually don't step out from the pack like this. Um, but it's such a fascinating sure. Like talking about sure of itself movies. Like it's so weird and so out there but it doesn't really step back from any of it. It's I, I wrote when I wrote about it, that kind of feels like its own translation from another language. Like it's stilted and things happen that don't feel realistic. And it's supposedly set in just a random town in America, but it doesn't feel anything like it, but it's confidence in how weird it is and where it's going is fascinating. And it's a kind of a riff on a Hitchcockian idea of like the uncle coming to town. Oh God, now I can't remember the Hitchcock movie where that actually happens in. Any of you um, remember, like, but the Uncle Charlie? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, shit. Uh, it's not suspicious. No, it's is it? not. It's no. a, I'll, I'll uh, think of it in a second. Um, but Google it's, faster. It's got really fascinating performances from uh, Mia Wasikowska and uh, Matthew Good, especially. I think is really interesting as the creepy uncle. Um, and it's so stylish and it's so heightened, and you feel so much of what the characters are feeling. There's this great scene that's featured heavily in David's uh, top ten where they're playing the piano together and it's kind of, there's a sexual energy to it, but it's also an intense like creepiness to it. There's a lot of 
varying emotions that are all played out right there on screen with the camera and with the performances all kind of working well together. I just thought it was such a confident bit of crazy out there-ness in a year when there's been a lot of like very well crafted kind of not I wouldn't say safe but a lot of movies that are very well made and very straightforward I liked how this one kind of really went for something glossy and out there kind of like the great Gatsby in a way which didn't make my top 10 but I liked a lot too the work of a director who really wants to go in this wild direction and doesn't want to hold your hand getting there and unfortunately Stoker bombed yeah like made yeah. like no was- money was not rewarded for taking its chances, but uh, yeah, terrific, terrific movie. Uh, I th- That's why I am wearing a leather belt right now. I went out and immediately bought a leather belt. Um, the, I'm creepy, though. The movie that I was thinking of is Shadow of a Doubt. Hitchcock. Nice. Shadow of a Doubt. So, Patches, you're number nine. I'm challenging you to say the title in the Bane voice. The Wind Rises. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Does that, was that, that pretty was good? Excellent. It was close enough. A for effort. Uh, which I guess is not really, if I'm really doing the movie service, is not the title. What's the title? I, I don't know if I can pronounce Kaze Tachi. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think, you, you gotta go for the Japanese. I think the wind okay, rises good, good, good. Uh, yeah, so The Wind Rises is my number nine. Um, I, I cannot wait to see it again, and, and I get, as we discussed in our preambles, kind of watch it become a better film to me and, and really treasure it more and maybe climb this list a decade later. But um, I... I'm a lifelong Hayao Miyazaki fan. I didn't know what to expect from The Wind Rises, which felt like a departure. You know, he's worked on some biographical, autobiographical-type films or natural films in the past, but it hasn't been um, as prevalent as as his fantastical work. Uh, And I was excited to see something, him translate stories um, and and imagery that he really treasures into his animated form. Um, And I guess it's taken some heat in the past few weeks about its um, moral ambivalence or, I don't know, towards war or towards these figures that he's portraying in the film. Um, I could be biased, but I certainly (laughs) am. I feel like you might be. Here we go. I, I do, as objectively as possible, I get the sense that the, that, People are lightening Ker- up on that. Thing. Yeah, that people that kerfuffle has sort of died down, I and hope people so. because I think what happened is that a lot of people. It's going to come those, back when the movie actually comes out. Maybe, but a lot of those same people waged the, a similar argument. In they, they defended world, uh, world right, of Wall Street, absolutely. Wolf of Wall Street, from a very similar argument, and realized how silly they seemed in retrospect. Um, but I, I, we've discussed this film a bit at length, and um, all I'm going to say is that beyond the imagery, what Miyazaki can do with the animated form to really show us Jiro's obsession with planes or or the magic that comes from design and what fuels him as a designer, an innovator, an artist. Um, I was really touched by the romantic angle of this film about the relationships, about, you know, I mean, I think this film is about artists and, and I think that's why it really spoke to me about how you can become entangled in your work and how other people can use you to do something that is not as as comfortable or is not as um, appreciated. It might be evil. Um, and I, and I, I was just, you know, I'm really taken by it. And again, I don't know if I have a ton to say right now about the film. It's something I want to keep revisiting and just like seeing the nuance, what he's able to achieve in drawing and illustrative form. I mean, it's just astonishing to have two real relationships that can crumble or that can be confused and, um, that can seem so human when you know that this person is is drawing it, um, and I I just find that fascinating. So the wind rises. I'm sure we'll cover it again before the end of this list. And uh, yeah, 
Excellent. Uh, oh, wait. I also wanted to say that I really, really love the music in this film. Yeah. I, 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 I realized that I should have done a cross-check between that best scores list that I published at David's site. And uh, I think most of the movies that I put on that list end up being on my top ten list. Obviously, that is an important part. And uh, Joe Hisaishi, who has been a long collaborator of Miyazaki, um, does some extremely wonderful work playing with the, the Italian aspects of this of um, Jiro's men- or not mentor, but uh, his, his idol inspiration, yeah, and his idol. Um, I just, I just got swept up in it. I see it sort of like uh, an election between how you represent characters, and there's like Wolf of Wall Street, and there's The Wind Rises, but Saving Mr. Banks just did such a horrible job with P.L. Oh Travers, it'll split Why? the vote. Why did you even bring that in to this conversation? Because we're not going to be on anybody's list. You're bringing Walt Disney into the conversation about Miyazaki. I was waiting for someone to... We're going to get mad. Yeah, let's get mad. I was waiting for someone to troll David and put Saving Mr. Banks on their top ten. (laughs) I think they'd be trolling all of us. We stand together as you All of cinema. Hey, for all you know, that was a really personally important movie to me. Hey, it might be coming later. It might be my number one. Dave is the keeper of Walt Walt actually had a number in his name. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's go to David Ehrlich, number eight. Uh, my number eight film of the year is by Zha Zhenkei. It's a film that played at the New York Film Festival and then opened in New York and maybe on VOD, but maybe not on VOD. I don't know. Probably so this not is not an Ehrlich cheat. It actually did play in theaters. Oh, yeah, no. This is, and was you know, sw- quickly swept away from theaters. But it's called The Touch of Sin. Yeah. Uh, it is fantastic. It is essentially an omnibus. Um, it's sort of a... I, I think it, it, superficially, it's a huge change of pace for Zha Zhenkei, who's known for making slightly more impenetrable films that are about sort of moral decay and uh, cultural decay in in China. Uh, and I, that's where I think this film has a lot in common with his previous works, but this takes on a more sort of pulpy veneer to it. This is four different stories and a, and a not really a framing story, but a little coda about four different people in contemporary China who are all all encounter or bring violence unto themselves in some way or other. They are often bleakly funny uh, and almost always chilling. And the real and I think that why it really fits so well in the texture of this entire year at the movies is because all for the most part, these characters actually have been cornered by society in such a way that they that they genuinely benefit from the violence they commit. They are not uh, sometimes they're punished, but really their lives are bettered. Their wrongs are righted through violence, and it's a very critical look at what, how and what kind of society would get to the point where that could be the case, where the fundamental law of uh, people living you know, together in harmony and whatnot would be so turned upside down and, and violence against their fellow man would be a uh, – an appropriate and successful rejoinder to the injustices that they've suffered. Uh, it's 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 very accessible stuff, especially for Zhao Kei. The first segment in particular is pretty riotously entertaining about a, a local guy who's sort of a, a darkly comic figure and totally loses his mind and goes on a shooting spree. It sounds very, very grim, but uh, it is told with a light, it, you know, not too dissimilar from the tone of Wolf of Wall Street, if just a little bit more subdued uh, comic. And it's beautifully shot. Um, it is horrifying, but always engaging stuff. Um, and I'm sure it will be 
widely available for home video next year. I yeah, I don't. It's not on iTunes. Yeah, like I wish right I, I you know I wish I you wanted could to say, check it down before this. So. Yeah, I was. Well, I was hoping that this day and age that you'd see a film of this caliber and you could guarantee that it would be available on Blu-ray. But I think a lot of these smaller studios. This is uh, Kino Lorber is a great company uh, and has been for a while, but they don't always put their films on Blu-ray in addition to DVD uh, because it's expensive and there's a small market for this. But this is one of those films that really deserves a high-definition release, and uh, I hope it gets one. But A Touch of Sin is fantastic, and if you like A Touch of Sin, I cannot recommend highly enough digging into Zsa Zhenke's back catalog and watching films like The World and Platform. Uh, they are amazing. Okay. Brilliant. I'm recalling that David said an argument cannot be a film for my number eight pick, Room 237, <laughs> which is just an ongoing argument for an entire film. It is a documentary about the making of Stanley Kubrick's – not the making of, but a critical reading, several critical readings of uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. It's directed by a guy named Rodney Asher, and through the miracle of ISC Midnight – um, managed to get on Netflix and available to the public. So I would tell people, like, you think you know what happened at the moon landing, but you need to see Room 237. Is that- I, I think we've touched on this, but I don't even know if I'd call it a critical read of the movie. See, the interesting thing that I like about this movie is it's a lot like the podcast in the sense that if you have people with a certain level of intelligence arguing about stuff, it's kind of hard to prove them wrong or not wrong. If the central conceit is the filmmaker is either really aware or is not allowed to be aware of the symbolism in his own movie, then that sort of straddles both sides of this line and makes everything either super valid or super invalid. And I like that level of criticism when we're talking it to bringing my list back to my personal uh, life. Um, my first ex-girlfriend and I would sort of argue like that, where arguments would start with, like, why didn't you do the dishes and end with, like, well, can't we just agree that life is suffering? And it would take, you know... <laughs> It would take uh, hours and hours to get to that point, but with lots of interesting things around the way. So I think sometimes uh, the conversation is more important than having a definitive read of uh, The Shining, which, I, of course, you can make yourself. And as this movie shows, it would be perfectly valid as long as you're not completely misreading the movie. Oh, maybe if you are completely misreading the movie Minotaur Woman. So, uh, yeah. Room 237, I think it's still on Netflix, so that's one you could check out now. And I also pimped it on our Let's Talk About Documentaries That Are Interesting episode a few weeks back. So on the current, on Fighting in the War Room, not on Classic. And Fighting in the Room, well, everything's going to be on FightingInTheWarRoom.com. Yes. But it was on a show so, actually called Fighting in the War Room. Yes, our second, our second episode. Oh, excellent. So we're going to roll down to Katie, who has picked a John Mayer song. <laughs> oh, yes, that's my... Uh... It's, it's the best film I've seen all year John, by John Mayer. Um, this is maybe count as trolling David. I picked Gravity because even though I think the screenplay does have some weaknesses that bugged me after I saw the movie, the actual experience of watching it was basically unlike anything that I've seen in several years. Appreciating Gravity is now reduced to troll. <laughs> trolling. Like David. trolling you David. can no longer appreciate Gravity. Without thinking of I just David. want to take a glass half-empty look here and say, I'm not sure if the screenplay has any strengths, but... <laughs> oh, my God. I, I mean, I think it's become clear over doing episodes of this. I get really excited when a blockbuster is really good and then gets seen by a lot of people. I think it makes us all a better culture when there are very large, very successful movies that are of good quality. 
And I think regardless of some flaws that are in the way the story is told, the work put into gravity, the passion of the way this film was made, the performance at the middle of it, Sandra Bullock, is amazing. And just the idea that you can step into a movie theater and be transported to something that you would have no way of seeing on your own. It's this really old-fashioned idea of what movies were supposed to be. And I think many of the movies on our list prove that you don't have to do that to be a great film. But I really like it when a movie does that so successfully. And the fact that Gravity is the movie that everyone had to see, that everyone did go to see based on the box office, and that it held up, that it really provided this experience and was thought-provoking and interesting and kind of rode you with it on its highs and lows. It just makes me appreciate so much what a really great director can do when he's given enough money to pursue this wild dream. And I mean, I'm the person who loved Avatar, so I have a very big soft spot for big, ambitious sci-fi movies that are told well. So I'm going to stand by gravity. I don't know how it will hold up. I haven't watched it on DVD. I don't really ever want to, but I want this movie to stand as kind of what can be accomplished when you dream that big and you are able to do it. And then, uh, you know, sometimes spending money on people who have talent is worth it, Hollywood. Maybe give it a shot once in a while. I wanted to back Katie up and say that I agree with her that it's good for the culture when there are these uh, more interesting blockbusters that sort of elevate the discourse. And I think that while I do have a number of issues with gravity and didn't find it quite as transporting as everyone else does, I think that it is a uh, really interesting landmark in how it uh, – and the, in the conversation that it leads to and invites about uh, what – cinematography is where the line between cinematography and special effects are um how what spectacles place in modern moving going is i think all of these things are really interesting and i'm glad that the movie raised them good yes i like the spectacle thing especially with the hobbit doing its hobbit thing over there oh man that gravity could come out and just be like hey we're not a fantasy or superhero movie but wow yeah i liked it a lot and nothing uh, uh, Pat- nothing no oh, no large cities were destroyed in the making of this spectacle which was a relief that we see, I don't know how much stuff they got through the atmosphere. Space cities. Space cities. <laughs> All right, patches. If Katie chose a John Mayer song, it appears you've chosen one of the fifty states. <laughs> is that wait? Is, is that it Iowa? Iowa? Not uh, good segues. Not good segues. Is it this South year. Dakota? <laughs> yes, exactly. My favorite film of the year. No, um, I went with Alexander Payne's Nebraska. Um, I think the interesting thing about this movie is that I saw it at Cannes and I did not really care for it that much. I thought it was kind of a, a misfire for him. And then I saw it again at New York Film Festival and was just like blown away. I didn't know what I had been missing. Maybe I was sleep deprived. Or I don't know. I think he tinkered with it a little bit and it was just sharper. And um, the performances became so enhanced when I started seeing Will Forte's David character, uh, the the son of Bruce Dern, um, as this as this observer, as this the transport of quality of going to your father's hometown to go back in time with him and meet these people. Um, we've talked about it a bunch on the podcast. Um, I don't know what other people really end up thinking about it in the end, but um, I mean, the comedy is so rich and so and tethered to real people um, for someone who spent a lot of time in rural Pennsylvania growing up. Uh, that's, it speaks to me. Um, it's certainly it's, it's, you know, sitting around in a room Completely quiet, not talking to anyone, and just chilling with family. That, that's that scene, that's real. I feel like everyone who's ever been to Thanksgiving sees that scene. It's just like, oh my god. Yeah. And I would never, I, I wouldn't want to say that this movie will be lost on people who haven't had that experience. But I think it is. Um, you get more out of it if you've lived a bit of Nebraska, and 
I, I mean, again, I think Bruce Dern is wonderful, I, but he's not the star of the show for me. I think Will Forte doesn't necessarily he's it's not like a scene chewing role but again he's this careful observer and these other people around him i think alexander payne has such a knack for casting every single role feels just like the right person i mean june squibb the way she kind of blossoms into a real human being uh as she re-enters this past um you know in the beginning she's kind of a nagging wife and we've we've seen that before and then we unearth her as the movie goes on um to have Bob Odenkirk uh, to play the brother it just feels very natural. He's, you know, maybe he deserves a bigger role, but the fact that he doesn't makes his performance fit better into the movie. Um, you know, there's no catering to stardom or something like that. And having Stacy Keach just feel like I, I'm worried that I might have a Stacy Keach in my life, or mm-hmm. uh, I guess an Ed Pegram. Um, oh God, just, I'm your Stacy Keach. <laughs> I know. Yeah, probably. Is one of us trying to destroy you secretly? <laughs> probably. Well, just like. To, to, to find later in life someone who never changes and someone who is always going to be an antagonist and someone who's really made life worse for somebody. And, and to have Will Forte kind of witness that about his father I think is – I'm, I'm a very curious person about my parents' pasts and who they really are and, and people in general. I'm just like always – I want to know where people come from. And I think Nebraska does an amazing job of, of making that discovery for someone and how fulfilling that can be. And of course, as David said, the last shot of this movie – the last shot yeah, of this movie. Oh. Really good. Um, and I love the score. I love the cinematography. I just love the whole package. It's a nice little movie. There's something really great when you're talking about Will Forte, who I agree doesn't get singled out enough. Uh, he plays this goodness. Like you just see someone who's trying to do the right thing and who's frustrated by it, but who's doing it anyway. There's like, But he's not even trying to do the good thing. That's the interesting part. He's so – he doesn't want to do anything. Well, he doesn't, really. but he's, he's like so – he, he understands that he ha- doing the right thing is putting himself through this trip that he desperately does not want to go on. And it's not like he's doing it out of any sense of justice. He really doesn't have any other choice, but he does have enough of a moral center to be like, this is the right thing to do to do right by your father. And it's so, I mean, it's something that doesn't get depicted that Will Forte does really effortlessly. I agree that he's a big standout of this and, you know, we've always liked Will Forte. MacGruber. Yeah, which is very similar to Nebraska. So similar. Pretty much the same We're going to move on to number seven, or as I call number V. Ha! Told you the segues weren't good this year. <laughs> um, David, your number seven pick. Oh, shit. Uh, me already? Okay. Uh, well, I, I, cha- I challenge you to only spend a 20th of this movie's running time describing this movie. All right. Well, uh, I'm going with a four-hour documentary by Frederick Wiseman, who was known for making four-hour documentaries, called At Berkeley. Um, this is a film that... I don't think really got much exposure. It also played at New York Film Festival and then had a small run. I think it played on PBS or was going to play on PBS. Are you telling me a four-hour documentary about college didn't get a ton of exposure? <laughs> uh, well, it's not a really about college. It's about sort of academic ecosystems and communities as a whole. I mean, what this movie does in a typical Wiseman fashion where it's, you know, there's no talking heads. There's no, there's certainly no um, uh, outright Interjection by Wiseman. I mean, obviously, he crafts the entire sort of argument and sweep of the film in the editing room. Uh, but he, uh, you know, there are no talking heads, there are no, there are no uh, graphics on screen. There's nothing like that. It's just very much a portrait of a year, or maybe a little bit less than an academic year at Berkeley University uh, in California. And it looks at they're, they're facing a, a budget crisis. The state, the laws have changed, and they are having to figure out their budget for the incoming year and they are facing student protests because the tuition is no longer going to be 
for, I can't remember the particulars. I mean, they're not especially Need blind but the, or... Yeah, yeah, there's something's happening with the tuition. I could have told you all about it in uh, encyclopedic detail at the time, but it has since slipped my mind. But um, what this does and, over the, and, and why I think it needs to be four hours long and uses the time so effectively and very entertainingly, I must say. I mean, there's very little cutting. A lot of these scenes transpire in real time, more or less. You're spending 15 or 20 minutes in one room listening to one person speak. But it's such a wonderful tour of voices, literally, that timbers of these people's all these professors voices are amazing but you get so many different perspectives from the students who are working on you know these wonderful scientific projects to help uh war veterans become mobile again to the uh this guy who is a complex character and almost becomes the antagonist of the, of the piece who is the dean uh, at the university and seeing things from his perspective you get to see them dealing with the student uprising and then you cut and you get to see things from the student's point of view uh and it is you know i I always hesitate if outright refuse to say that there is any sort of objective perspective in documentaries but uh this feels like as close as we are going to get and how even-handed it is and how free of an agenda it is and certainly wiseman's body of work uh invites that and does him that favor in a way that may, we may not allow for somebody else. I mean, you know, looking at his films from high school in the 60s and Titty Cut Follies through, uh, you know, the things that are very descriptive of where they're set from racetrack and ballet and Belfast, Maine, which is another really long one set in Maine uh, and boxing gym. And they're very upfront about what they are in a way that sort of uh, early realities or actualities uh, for these you know, early cinema films were. Um, but it's, it's such, you, it's such a great narrative sweep. It feels like the Lord of the Rings looking at these, uh, <laughs> the school in, in turmoil and all these, and you really get caught up in the drama of how it's going to play out. But not just – I mean it's so affecting and I think the reason that I rated it so highly is not just because it's such a phenomenal portrait of this one place but like so many phenomenal portraits of small things also has so much to offer about the world at large and how uh, communities function and stabilize and readjust and um, how all of these sort of different interests – form together into this one incredible machine, which is this university and sort of the, the miracle of a thing like that even existing. Uh, and, you know, it never really tells you how to feel or what to think, but it is a really remarkable portrait of sort of American systems today. And I Not since really Road Trip has the college experience been so packaged from life to screen. Not since Road Trip. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, that seems like a misnomer because there isn't any dorm life in At Berkeley, correct? Uh, yeah, I don't think there is any dorm life in At Berkeley. It's all about people sort of in the environments that define them. So while you see students, they are not lounging about but doing the things that uh, it sort of appealed to the university to accept them in the first place. You know, whether they're, you know, the university may not have wanted that to manifest in the form of protesting, uh, but it's that spirit, that that ability and desire to contribute to society that uh, I think made them appealing candidates. So you always see the people doing sort of the things that they do best. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty thrilling stuff, and the four hours really zips by. The four hours zips by, much like my number seven pick, The Wolf of Wall Street, where the three hours zips by, or at least for me. Um, this is the spot where I would put 12 Years a Slave if that movie did anything for me as a person. <laughs> but That's, instead, That is fascinating that you're like, 
don't like it that much, but you're like, I would have been I like that you were keeping the seat warm I know. for 12 Years a Slave, but it just couldn't make it untimely. Well, I was keeping a seat warm for a let's look at a part of American history where people are being victimized and maybe understand it a bit better. And so I watched Roots and Wolf of Wall Street, and that taught me about slavery and the stock market crash. 12 Years a Slave is great, but it's basically a Serbian film about slavery. So Ooh. what are you going to do? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, that is the best quote. Will, Let me go for my that Kevin is Spacey. So I have a feeling we're going to be arguing about that more <laughs> in the future, but at least for right now, I'm putting Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street, because for me, it's a fun look of ex- at excess and uh, sort of the motivating uh, factors behind the financial crisis and greed and it uh, makes sure that you, the viewer, has to bring your own morality to it, which is interesting that people are having trouble with that because maybe that's why we didn't arrest any of these guys initially. But whatever. Anyway, right. the crime—the punishment doesn't fit the crime, but the movie's a really fun ride to just watch uh, Leonardo DiCaprio learn how to work his body for comedy yeah. and create this character where you know, I believe him at 23 and I believe him at the end. Uh, whatever age he is, someone doesn't. I, someone didn't watch Growing Pains. If you don't think he's, if he just learned that skill, no. Well, but it is. It is amazing how believably he pulls off this age range and and continues to be such a convincing twenty three year old. And then when you see him at the end of the movie and he's closer to his current age, you're like, yeah, I buy that too. And it just it's it's pretty amazing. He's in. Yeah, all, he's I, odd I, by Matthew McConaughey at twenty three, as would we all be. Mm hmm. I compare a lot to uh, 12 Years a Slave because they both had great performances and great directing, but one had a backbone that I cared about, and that was Wolf of Wall Street. So on that sort of downer note, let's go over to Katie. Oh, okay. I thought we were going to argue about Wolf of Wall Street some more. I guess we'll have more time to talk uh, we, about it. Oh, we will. Okay. And 12 Years a Slave. Fair enough. There will be lots of arguing. Um, my number seven is one that is one of the ones that now, in retrospect, I wonder why I couldn't find room to rank it higher. It's Spike Jones's Her which I have, uh, I saw again since I made this list, and that's part of why it uh, mm. captivated me so much. It's such a detailed and thoughtful, and really, like, in a, like I, in a year with Wolf of Wall Street, it's such a tender movie about, and, and, the, and I like the feelings in it as compared to something like Wolf of Wall Street, which David, I also you're love. so mean. I know. No, I just, I, I just, I'm not laughing at Katie. I just uh-huh. think it's funny that the idea that there's this one movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, and then, with no feelings. And I know the movie is is so debased that anything <laughs> that's sweet in the year, it's like in the year where there was Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> think that we could have the, in thing, the year that, that Wolf of Wall also, Street, where an innocent child society. could be born. <laughs> um, what I like about her is that it is a version of the future that we really don't ever see where it's kind of different, but kind of not. And it's kind of like our current world and obviously the fashions and all, I mean, the production design of this is mind boggling, but it's about how this technology that we all think is ruining our lives where we have our phones and they make it so we can't talk to each other. It's about how it will and will not make us better people and will or not help us connect to each other. And you've got this version of Los Angeles where everyone takes public transit, which is amazing to think of, but they're all talking on their phones. And then Joaquin Phoenix, obviously, Obviously falls in love with his operating system, who's voiced by Scarlett Johansson. But you see how he has this great relationship with this character played by Amy Adams, who is a human who lives in his building and who he's friendly with. And that push and pull between digital relationships and real ones is something that feels very modern, but also really twisted in this future world. And what I like the best about watching her both times, and first time 
where it kept going in directions where I didn't think it was going to go. I thought it was going to be about cultural acceptance of this computer human relationship. And then it wasn't about that. And then it was going to be about her development as a sentient being. And then it wasn't really about that. It kept evolving and changing in this completely satisfying way where you kind of feel like you have the number on this little story, this short story about a man and a computer, and then it gets a lot bigger than that. And then watching it a second time, I could really watch how those pieces fell into place and how these relationships grow and how this uh, voice performance from Scarlett Johansson just does so much to create a real, I mean, she feels like a human out of this computer voice character. There's just, uh, there's so much to it. And there's so many little roads to explore when you watch it again, even if it's just kind of seeing how the clothes fit together and how the, how the backgrounds feel, you know, where real Los Angeles ends in Shanghai, where they film part of it begins. Um, it's a really rewarding movie that gets better for me. It has gotten better for me the second time I watched it and I expect will. And I'm really glad that it's the vibe of it and the movie that feels this way is available to be stepped into and kind of see where the future may or may not take us. Are you going to, by your fiance, um, like high pants. I don't know. Do you think those are going to come back? <laughs> I, I'm going to buy him right? a red well, well, cardigan. They, we know they will. I know. Well, Spike Jones can't predict the future. Theodore Thwombly. Thwombly. Should I make the tactical decision of of not further engaging this movie until it pops up again I, later in the episode? I believe it may <laughs> pop yes, up that again. That would be smart. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> it seems like. If if I'm I'm getting the feeling that a lot of our number one picks are going to be very contentious with each other. So. Is this the first Let's year that, that we have not shared any of the same number ones? Uh I believe so. Yes, none of us have the same number one. Wow. But that there's very little overlap this year. But uh, unfortunately, we get to segue to our first overlap, which is Mr. Patches' number seven film. Yeah, uh, I went with Park Chan Wook's Stoker. Yay! Which uh, mm. yay. So- beautiful Katie do you get points for for overlapping being the first one to yeah I don't know um I mean everything Katie said uh Katie was absolutely right in recounting our experience seeing this at Sundance and probably like the back row of stadium which was actually kind of perfect with with Brian Moylan who couldn't stand it although maybe the front row I would have preferred just so I could be like bathing in this movie (laughs) um and then and then running to have giant glasses of red wine afterward being flipping out about it um I don't have too much more to say other than that. I, I, I'm i just sad that we can't have more movies like this that can play with heightened emotions and heightened feels without them being kind of scrutinized in for with their lack of reality. You know, like people walked out of this movie complaining that it wasn't real or that the relationships didn't feel like real human relationships or not. This would never happen. Like what movie are you people watching? Like I lost myself. In Stoker, it is kind of like a horror movie. It is an operatic tale, um, and the imagery really complements that. And so does the music, and so does this all of the atmosphere. Um, I, I, I lost myself in Stoker, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I'm, I'm, I wish we had someone on here that hated it, uh, because I don't get it. I really don't get the hate. All right, so in the, uh, um, I guess, spirit of overlap and saving time, since we're getting that overlapping space, David, you and I share a number six. So let's right. let's look at our shit and talk oh, about Spring Breakers. Oh, nice. Uh, David, you want to take it? Uh, I got shorts in every fucking color, so. Damn right. We're definitely talking about uh, the bling ring. No, uh, Spring Break. I mean, I would talk about the bling ring. Of course you would. <laughs> spring Spring Breakers, uh, in a film not too dissimilar from the, the Bling Ring, is 
I think one of the defining films of the year, uh, let alone one of the best, I, I obviously think it's also one of the best, but I think uh, objectively it is one of the films that really captured the zeitgeist in this year and really helped launch a new distribution label in the process, which is A24. Uh, but uh, I, I think that, you know, in the year that really dove headfirst into the American nightmare, uh, this did so you know, by way of a Kesha video directed by Terrence Malick to make it as reductive as possible. That was my first thought walking out of it, and I'll stick to it now. Um, but, I, I mean, I think that this movie was uh, a real lightning rod just because of how unafraid it was to provoke these things to not have necessarily easy answers, to have it be sort of a power trip for these girls and a fantasy that also um, sort of justified their behavior with how... Uh, baseless the culture around them had become, uh, while also taking sort of a critical look at this and and uh, various things around it, how much we enjoyed watching it versus how disgusting and repugnant it was, uh, and all in this way that you know took uh, the MTV Spring Break video packages from the '90s and then in the very first shot of the movie just perverted them beyond any recognition by simply turning up the volume on what was already there. And uh, I think James Franco should win an Oscar for this. Uh, I hate to talk about awards, but you know when I do that I, I that you mean it. I mean it. I mean it. I think uh, it really shows how useless and just completely a waste of everyone's fucking time the Academy Awards are when James Franco uh, in a performance that so gets the tone of a movie that so is its backbone in a supporting way is not really in uh, in the running. Uh, I'll happily eat those words if he gets nominated by some miracle, but I doubt it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's like how far removed from what's actually happening out there can, can an awards body be? But Franco's phenomenal. Um, Dave, what did and, you love yeah. about this movie? Um, I like Harmony Korean movies because they're sort of like entertaining fever dreams. But this one also had that American zeitgeist thing that David was talking about. And for me personally... That has a spot on my list because I like it when films, you know, echo something back. And I kind of like that there was a period of time because of the ex-Disney stardom and the Francoism of it all that Harmony Korean got to troll a whole bunch of kids on opening weekend who thought this would be a fun, understandable movie. So I, I like I like that sort of, uh, I don't know, that prism from which to view culture that makes it uh, sort of disgusting, but also uh, finding a way to trick people into... Uh, putting that in front of their own eyes if that's a weird way to say about spring breakers but that's what i liked about it i think i felt so I, I had a hard time getting past my own repulsion about spring breakers which i grant like the movie is intense to be repulsive and then make you think and i think it did that but i think i would have to watch it again to feel as satisfied by the commentary and like everything that people really responded to i was so grateful to get out of that movie that i I'm almost loath to like challenge my own reactions, which I know is the point. I just kind of don't want to go back in that world. Mm, well, your number six pick isn't exactly a feel good movie. I know either. that's true. Wow, we're moving on. Our, this is the hopefully the weirdest transition we have in this entire show. Um, it's a <laughs> documentary you may remember from last year's top tens when Patches pulled a David Ehrlich and put it on his list, even though it wasn't open yet. It's a documentary called Call Me Kuchu, which. Uh, I patches yeah. I saw together at the uh, Hamptons Film Festival last fall, so it's been quite a while since I saw it, but it's really stuck with me because of the way that it gets inside the lives of these really remarkable people in Uganda who are fighting against their insane anti-gay laws. The the culture in that country is so much more poisonous than what we have here in terms of 
gay rights and, you know, weird religious getting in the way of people's freedoms. Um, and it gives you this really great insight into their culture and how they get along and how these gay people have banded together for their own safety and also their own community. They, they're such a interesting group of people to be around. They're fun and they're interesting and they, you know, they tease each other and they throw parties. And then they also do these really courageous acts of protest against this country that basically wants to exterminate them. And there's another documentary that I saw at Sunday. It's called God Loves Uganda, which is about much of the same stuff. It kind of covers some of the same people, but it's more about the evangelical American groups that go over there to try and, uh, you know, uh, proselytize in Uganda. And I, I thought it was such a much less interesting and insightful take on the same topic, which obviously that can happen. There can be multiple documentaries about the same thing, but I want more people to see Call Me Kuchu because it is so specific and so well embedded inside the lives well, of the more of- interesting people. Call Me Kutcher, I think, is in line with what David's been saying, where issue films mm. seem to feel less poignant because they're not really cinematic or they're not – it's not about storytelling. It's about documentation and, and making an argument. Mm-hmm. I don't think Call Me Kuchu is about it's, – it's not, it's not an issue film. Yeah. It's, a, it's a verite-style character movie about real people who are suffering, and it's always – it's focused on telling their stories and being personal with them, and I think the filmmaking – really speaks to that it, uh, you know it creates a comfort zone so we can get to know them and then see how horrible the world around them yeah and yeah I, I i agree what my my comments earlier you know about an approach to film as a whole and certainly some films in particular but call me kuchu is exempt this is a movie that that uh, has an urgent story to tell and tells it very, very well. And I wouldn't, I, I would agree with Fashion that it's not an issue, Phil, it's about these people. And even when it introduces you to like the legislators who are trying to pass this bill, it kind of just lets them sit there and basically they hang themselves by their own rope. There's no editorial, the, the movie doesn't have to tell you that killing gay people is wrong. It kind of understands that you're going to know that. And re- <laughs> it doesn't take the Fruitvale Station approach <laughs> of spending a hundred minutes convincing you that the death Although, of a young black man is a bad thing. I was happy with that title card at the end of Call me Kuchu that said killing gay people is wrong. Yeah. I was really, it had, really they like had the Ghostbuster symbol over. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Call Me Kuchu. It's a. Uh, I don't remember where it's available. It's been kind of varyingly available. It's definitely on, on iTunes and VOD and that sort of stuff yeah, now. Yeah, so go find it. It's, it, it played in theaters. Really. I, unlike Patches, care about you, the listener, and want you to be able to see the movies that we recommend. <laughs> Hey, well, I can, I can recommend a movie. Twice recommended, Call Me Kuchu in number six. So, Patches, what's your number six? Um, a movie we've already talked about called Gravity. Mm, sorry, uh, David. I guess I'm trolling David. <laughs> no. Um, Dave Dave can, can attest to this. Dave and I saw Gravity together, and I walked out of the theater, and I was, like, screaming and shouting because I lost my mind. Um, I sat in the first row. Because that's where I have to sit for movies. I just want to be there. And it was really loud. I mean, the first notes of the movie are just pounding into your ears. And I mean, I I love how abrasive gravity can be at times. Um, But again, as I discussed on the show previously, I walked out with um, understanding its themes or finding thematic reason. And maybe that is a Room 237 problem of mine where I'm reading too far into gravity. But I certainly enjoy it for thematic reasons that it's about religion it's about humanism it's about empowerment and uh, i believe plus a great ride you know i mean it can be it can have a visceral reaction as well and and i ate that up so 
I believe that's called the patches standard, where you know something always has to be talking about something. Yeah, it else. always and, and, it's always and somehow God and mostly about religion. Yeah. I, I yeah. think I think that's a good way to look at things, and I think that gravity certainly, uh, if if blatantly does all of those things, I just don't think it does any of them in a way that is interesting uh, and in, in a way that is uh, is a conducive partner to the type of movie that it is anyway Maybe. but it does, I, I, do all, it does do all those things i think it's impossible to miss don't don't I was use just, all your I was air just surprised, we got one more uh, yelling about gravity oh coming up. God. <laughs> i was just surprised that i kind of looked past the technical achievement i think that was the real focus of the conversation going into gravity and before mm-hmm. anyone had seen anything just how long Quran was working on this movie and what they had to do to achieve it in terms of cgi or camera movements or lighting and i didn't i didn't think about that once when i saw gravity and i didn't really think about it again when i saw gravity on an imax screen i just really lost myself in it so mm, gravity good year mm. for john mayer songs yep um we are halfway through everybody Whoa. cheers everybody take a drink yeah uh, we're going to go to David with the number five, and uh, there's two versions of this one. I'm guessing one doesn't make the list. Uh, right. Yeah. My number five pick is uh, one version of Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, and unfortunately uh, not the version that made its way to American screens. I've made as much of a stink about this as I could or had the energy to do. Uh, but yeah, Wong Kar Wai is one of my favorite filmmakers. I think I'm probably not alone in saying that. He has been... Uh, out of commission for a little bit. Uh, you know, it takes a very, very long time to make his movies. He has a unique process. Uh, and his last film was his first and, and thus far only film set in the English language in America. It was called My Blueberry Nights. And I think uh, I'm not alone there as well in saying that it was not so great. And it was uh, sort of up in the air as to where – it was a, a pivotal moment for Juan Kar Wai, this movie – if he was going to have something new to sort of excite the base or if he was going to slide further into uh, a very particular brand of irrelevance. And the Grandmaster is amazing. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a biopic unlike any I have seen. It is a thoroughly Wong Kar Wai film, but in a way not too dissimilar from Miyazaki's relationship to The Wind Rises is uh, takes Wong Kar Wai's manner of storytelling and applies it to uh, one individual's life story, that being Ip Man, who is remembered certainly in the Western world as being Bruce Lee's teacher. But Wong Kar Wai is much more interested in him as a totem to move through the mid-20th century in China and use as a means of looking at how the, the relationship between traditions and time and how people are sort of determined by the culture around them, how they maintain the things that are sort of important to who they are as a people versus who they are individually, and how they – all these people with their own individual agendas sort of circle around one another. Uh, with Tony Luong as Ip Man has this beautiful uh, and fragmented relationship with Zhang Ji, who's playing a fellow martial artist from a different school named Gong Er. That's her name, not the name of the school. And they sort of uh, – ping pong into one another over the course of um over the course of 30 years across the second sino-japanese war uh as you see them pull apart you see man's family pulled apart and pieced back together and how these cultures reconstitute themselves intercut with breathtaking uh like really really amazing martial arts sequences i was afraid at first uh, i had an interesting experience with this movie where i saw it the first time in the 130 minute 
cut that played in China, and I was sort of nonplussed. I, my brain, I wasn't watching in ideal conditions. My brain was sort of turned off by the stop, uh, by the uh, step printing that Wong Kar Wai uses a lot, which is sort of that staccato, stuttery uh, effect that he uses a lot, particularly in the first fight sequence. And it just sort of blinded me to recognizing what was going on, and I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. And then I saw Harvey Weinstein's uh, cut that he made with Wong's involvement and maybe blessing i don't know he was working in a sort of a limited limited capacity with uh, annapurna pictures also and megan ellison this is not my favorite megan ellison move although she's certainly still more more than on my good side but um then the 108 minute cut released in theaters in the united states is a travesty i mean it really guts this movie um whether Wong Kar Wai signed off on it or not and but what it did is it did a really remarkable job of clarifying for me what was waiting what was so spectacular and singular about the original cut that I had seen that sort of fuller uh, meal and so when I went back and revisited that the movie really opened up for me and blossomed into uh, one of my favorite Wong Kar Wai movies and this incredibly sumptuous and, and deeply tender thing that uh, you can find by torrenting if they're not going to make it legally available here not that, that I advocate that wink wink or you can go to like yesasia.com and get the blu-ray which is region free and is very nicely subtitled um and all of those things but it is a really remarkable movie that i'm afraid that the subpar and occasionally you know certainly misprioritized and occasionally incoherent american cut will dis disinterest people from seeking out because they'll see this and feel like they've gotten the full thing and that they'll certainly have no interest in going back to it but it was only because i had already seen the full version that the american cut restored my interest and sort of rejuvenated it in a way that that made me want to like i knew there was something there and i just had to dig it out but uh yeah it's this, an amazing movie this is actually the first time you brought it up which if you all go to fighting in the now we're gonna have a page with everybody's lists and link to the episodes that we've talked about but your discussion of discovering a movie by seeing a lesser cut of it was really interesting at the time, and I encourage everybody to go listen to that classic episode, 129. And we have a review of the American cut, which is the one that I saw, sadly. Yeah, well, maybe not listen to that one, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if I link to both Oh, of wow, them, I'll be on tenterhooks. That's right. All right, well, I'm on to my number five, which is Gravity, but uh, let's, inst instead of talking about what other people have talked about, let's assume that this movie doesn't live up to the Patches standard and just say that a thriller that takes place in space that I could see in IMAX 3D is reason enough to go to the theater, and if anything is a theatrical must-experience, it was Gravity, and that sort of being a popular thing, like Katie said, was enough to me to give the movie props and overlook um, what Patches thought was the birth of all humanity <laughs> at the end of the movie. It so. is kind of like one of those IMAX science movies, like Hubble 3D plus action. Yeah, and it's a thriller. And I think a lot of people were like, this is a science fiction movie. And I'm like, not really. It's a here-to-there thriller that is deals with science concepts. And I think if you see the movie on that and let it wash over you, then you could sort of let some of the weaker spots of the script go, or at least I did, and uh, yeah. gravity washing over me, or pulling me, <laughs> was was pretty sweet for me. Um, but, yeah, David disagrees, and we don't have to talk about gravity again. Oh, so, thank you, Ever gravity. again? No, that, never again. We don't have to talk let about it. Let it drift away into the cosmos. Goodbye, gravity. But... Let's dig up the other thing we were fighting about with Katie's number five pick. Um, I don't know that we've been fighting about this so much as the world itself can't stop fighting about it. My pick is Wolf of Wall Street. 
This movie is really Yay. interesting and exhausting and disgusting and funny and sad and hard to watch, but also I can't wait to watch it again. It's just, there's so much going on in it. I'm still not sure that the shorter version of it wouldn't be better, but at the same time, I want to see the original four-hour cut. It's got, as we were saying, like Leonardo DiCaprio learning how to use his body. He's giving this incredible performance. It's got... Martin Scorsese writing this really thin rail between comedy and tragedy that he hasn't done in a really long time. I mean, I think Goodfellas is the obvious comparison. And he did. I thought Hugo was the obvious. Yeah, you think there's a lot of uh, a lot of disgusting comedy in Hugo. Hugo's so sick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just it's such a movie that exists in this time. It's kind of hard. I know he's been trying to make it for a long time, but it's really impossible to imagine this movie existing the way that it does before the whole 2008 crash. It's so thoughtful and cynical and funny about the people who consistently are allowed to ruin everything and get away with it. And yet we still want to be them. It's got that last shot, which I think a lot of people have talked about as part of the satire of it, where you have people looking lovingly at Jordan Belfort. People want to be him. You get, I mean, everyone's afraid that there's going to be a bunch of idiots who walk out of this movie wanting to turn into him, but that's their fault. That's not Scorsese's fault. His movie is about the world that created people like this. And it's natural that it would result in something like that. And then it's got uh, a lot of great people in the sidelines. Kyle Chandler's awesome. Matthew McConaughey is awesome in his single scene. Um, shit. Uh, Meathead from All in the Family. Jesus Christ. Rob Reiner uh, is amazing <laughs> as Jordan felt. As Jordan, wow. I know. That was a really deep cut Rob Reiner. Um, yeah. He's really amazing as Jordan Belfort's dad. Jonah Hill is, is fine. I'm not as gung-ho on Jonah Hill as most people are. Um, but he and Leonardo DiCaprio have this amazing scene that uh, I believe was on Film.com's list of the best scenes of 2013 at number one uh in which they're on yeah. these crazy drugs there's just i've only seen it once i feel like after i see it again i'll have so much more to talk about with it i don't feel like i'll ever get sick of talking about this movie it's a it's a really fascinating and really weird one and really messy one and messy in a it's rare that i like messy movies but this one hits all the right notes for me in theaters now in theaters now dividing audiences everywhere all right, patches. Uh, oh, I'm not gonna make any jokes about this one. Oh no, because I think you know where they'd go. But oh, patches, boy. your number five film. Um, well, let me preface my number five film by saying yes, you can watch Goodbye First Love on Netflix, and it's probably just as good. That's what David would say after I recommend oh. this. Film. Oh no, I would I would say it's better, but it's fine. Oh, you mean Goodbye First Love is better? Much better. Yes. yes. No, I know what you think. I'm trying to get that out of the way. Uh, my number five pick is Blue is the Warmest Color, um, the much-discussed but probably little seen at the uh, film, the French film that, you know, swept Cannes, um, starring Léa Seydoux and Adèle, I can't, Exar Chapulos. That sounds right. I, I don't know. That's not, Why do I get these ones? Um, I pick you them. pick them yourself. <laughs> I, I know that there's been a lot of hullabaloo around you know, the sex scenes, Bloom's Warmest Color, and is it exploitive? Or, or you know, it's it seems very distracting to what I loved about this movie when I saw the can. And just to see a portrait of a young person taken seriously and allowed to breathe at, you know, the three-some-hour runtime of this film, you know, I, I it just took me back to, to figuring things out at that age, which is not that long ago, but feels so distant um, because we're, we're picking her up at the end of high school and watching as everything kind of cascades. There's so many questions. There's so too many answers. And I think Adele, uh, the character, and Adele, the performer, um, are really one here. And 
I I was just following a real person, and I I really I know that you guys did not respond to the film uh, with the same appreciation, but um, tender is a word we're throwing out here a lot. I'll say it's it's a tender movie, a, <laughs> an intimate movie, um, a very a funny movie, and. I don't know. It's it's all encompassing for me, and I I can't wait to see it again. I, I haven't seen it since Can, but it stuck with me because it just feels real and similar to the way I was describing the past. And enough said. This is a movie that just kind of casually flows through it, even when it goes into graphic places, even it goes into harrowing places, confusing places. It just feels like it should go there. So, God, I wish you had sold it to me that way. I was about to go see Blue is the Warmest Color for a podcast, and they were like. We want you to come on and also talk about like your background in the porn industry, and I was like, I don't know if I want to get involved in this conversation like that. So I, I mean, the sexuality it. is important, but the sexuality is beyond the act of sex, you know, and and that's what's so important. How that ripple effect travels with us, you know. I think Adele, the character, is is sexually pining all the time and and trying to figure out how she should express herself in that way, and sometimes it's through eight minutes of solid sex that we get to see, but sometimes it's laying on the beach and letting water kind of trickle over your feet and that feeling and how, what memory does that bring back immediately? And, and, and it's that kind of expression. It's that feeling that um, the three-hour runtime really allows. I mean, just, movies just don't get the room to, to have that moment, to let that moment breathe, and that's what really took me. Well, speaking of movies that let moments breathe, I would say possibly as some sort of torture porn, but I imagine I'd be the only one to say that. Let's go to David's number four pick. Uh, yeah, my number four pick is a film that Dave didn't understand very well, but that's okay. <gasps> oh, yeah, that's, many, we're, that's how we're going to take it oh, right from the start. Winning qualities. He's a lovely and very intelligent person, but sometimes, Let's, you know, t- let's all, talk about what I didn't understand. Oh, my God. Uh, we all make mistakes, and as you see in traditional American history, um, slavery. Um, hi, number four. Dave thing. leaving this off his list is it's equivalent, equivalent to slavery. slavery. I, I am directly comparing the two, <laughs> and it's really hard to say which is worse. Uh, it's my number four pick of the year is Steve McQueen's Twelve Years a Slave. I think he <laughs> rebounds from uh, a naive and sort of silly sophomore effort. Uh, Patch's game. number one film, and, which was uh, my number one movie. It was also ago. my number one movie. <laughs> you guys are- you guys are silly. I mean, he'll, I'm not sure if he'll ever at this rate make a movie that equals uh, his first movie, his first feature at least, because he was uh, very prominent in the visual arts world beforehand, but uh, which was Hunger. But 12 Years a Slave, I think, is not a uh, sort of a laundry list, a very clinical look at the, the horrors of slavery, although it certainly does uh, depict some of those in detail, but I don't think it does so in a way as if it's sort of introducing us to these things as if we are uh, ignorant or were before seeing this film ignorant to the fact that these things happened. I think the reason the movie was so effective for me, despite Hans Zimmer's atrocious score (laughs) and why Steve McQueen let him use such bombast is beyond me, is that it is a really... uh, For me, it was a very impactful, resonant look at compassion and how uh, sort of morality is not an absolute thing and how things that are concessions that are made to morality, I think as well, can can lead to much greater evils that people absolve themselves of. I think Benedict Cumberbatch's character is integral to this movie as uh, the first guy who owns Solomon Northrup, who's played you know uh, wonderfully by Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, and thinks that he's sort of 
his pal, that he is, uh, he's identified him as a good slave, and he knows that he respects him as an artist because he can play the violin, and he's one of the, the good ones, and he sort of laments that Solomon is in this position, but you know, other than treating him uh, with a modicum of humanity that is not afforded to all of his slaves, is not willing to do much to – it doesn't feel empowered to do much to free him from the bondage of slavery, and I think he is one of the uh, – not evil, I don't know, but one of certainly one of the most problematic characters in the movie. You know, not with it doesn't not problematic for the movie, but uh, problematic unto himself because he sort of allows himself to hit his threshold of doing good, uh, while as a result allowing evil of a much greater variety to thrive. Uh, as we see what happens when he sort of can't he can't grapple with that any longer and it's easier for him just to sort of turn a blind eye and cast Solomon Northrop to the much more outwardly sinister uh, slave owner played by Michael Fassbender um, and I think you know again when you get there and you see the various relationships that are happening on his plantation between uh, the slave whose name is Patty, Patsy yeah that he Patsy that he uh, has a very tortured love affair with um, and the various people that Chiwetel Ejiofor's character encounters there that compassion again is sort of dynamized into this thing that is um, that is very simple uh, as Brad Pitt's white savior character makes clear that these acts of compassion are very simple but uh, that the sliding scale of, of evils and, and how they perpetuate one another uh, it takes on a life of its own and I think um, I love what the movie does for the arbitrary nature of these human laws I think what's absolutely pivotal to the movie's genius is that we can't chart the time that Solomon spends there, that it all sort of becomes this void. But more importantly, that in a blink of an eye, he goes from being a free man to a slave, and then in a blink, a similar blink of an eye, from a slave to a free man. That this is not sort of God's order, but rather a human decree, which is as easily absolved as it is created in the first place. Uh, and I think the abruptness with which he goes from being a slave to being at home with his family—spoiler alert, but not really—is uh, is just so overwhelming. And that last shot. Uh, when they not only are they reconciling, of course, but I think for me, just the unspoken weight of how tragic it was, not that this is happening to everyone, of course, but also that their entire lives, the family they were making together was upended and then restored and nothing gained and just so much lost in that time is, is really, really powerful. And I think the film is so, so much more than just this tour of of horrors uh, that Dave is accused of being. And uh, I, I, yeah, I would encourage him to, to see it again and look, I don't know. Well, it's okay because I'm pretty sure I know that owning people is bad because they're people, but maybe I'll but give it another chance. But that's, that's, not, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. The, the film, unlike something like Fruitvale, well, it decides that its entire point is to convince you that uh, it was a shame for this for this young black man to be killed in cold blood. Uh, and then you, you go, okay, well, I knew that going in, so what did, this, what did I get out of this movie? I think that 12 Years a Slave is the opposite where it assumes from the beginning that you uh, don't need to be told that owning a slave is wrong but it steps that you know using that as a foundation uh, as, as being sort of genuinely understood looks deeper into how something like this can happen what the human element is in a system that that is so lacking in humanity and uh, you know picking it apart from the inside i don't think that it uh, i think that the movie would 
would not be worth making or watching. Uh, and I don't think Steve McQueen, if you're obviously a fan of his, yes. I think you would think better of him than to uh, tell a movie with that simple of an agenda. I think uh, I think you owe him a. But that Hans you owe him an apology. Maybe Dave. we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. But if everyone just to uh, hold off on piling on. We'll uh, we'll we'll come back to this. Keep it, keep love you, Dave. Support. I love you guys too. Twelve years, twelve years of podcasting about our topics. <laughs> yes. All right. Number four. Uh, my number four is Francis Ha, uh, Noel Baumbach, uh, Greta Gerwig, Black and White, Hipsterism. Totally echoes parts of my life. I would understand if you don't like it or don't understand why I just don't watch girls. I demand you take that hipsterism comment back. That is reductive of how good that movie is. I mean, I think so, but it's like saying this movie I mean, is about beat movie. poets is only reductive if you think being yeah. about beat poets is reductive. It's I definitely would, about hipsters. I hipsterism. might agree with that comment. Wait, what? Which comment? I, I would agree with Dave oh. that it's 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 digging into what people perceive as hipsters, so it is a hipster movie. And, there's, and self-identifying is okay in this work. There's that scene where she's at dinner with some strangers and just goes about talking about her day. And someone's like, I don't know you. I don't know any of these people. And there's just been times in my life where I've been, you know, trying to do this, you know, creative thing that you think you want to do. And you run up against some real-world consequences. And then you just start pouring out your life and you feel like you're a mess. And Frances Ha, I think, really documented that well. Um, for her, it's a little bit more her, uh, the loss of, or the evolution of her friendship with her roommate who she's very close with. And then also her breaking up with her boyfriend at the same time sort of sends her into a spiral. Uh, but I think it's all just a really good character piece and Greta Gerwig's adorable. So I, I don't know. I don't know if this is necessarily for everybody, but if you agree with other movies on my list, check out Frances Ha. I think it's still on the Netflix and it's uh, it's pleasant. Francis Ha is not on my list, but I do really like it, and I uh, I second yeah. the recommendation. It's enjoyable, and nobody owns anybody else. And oh wait, oh. no, we'll get there later. <laughs> hey, you don't know. Well, you don't know what what kind of deals she made to be a dancer in New York City. That's yeah, what's true. Patch really up to? It does end <laughs> kind of kind of abruptly without answering that and question. It, and but... it does have a, qu- a character named Patch, which is a good enough reason for all of you yeah, listeners. Right. To I can't see believe it. it didn't make my list. Katie, number four. Uh, my number four is going to come up later, I know, but uh, I'll talk about it now. It's before midnight. I saw it at Sundance, which was really under spectacular circumstances. I had never seen before sunset or sunrise before. I know this is. Uh, no, 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 no. Wait, you didn't let me finish. I watched both of them in like two days leading up to Sundance. Like I kind of marathon my way through both the way of them. You're supposed to no, do it. it's not the way you're <laughs> supposed to do it. But I got to catch up with these amazing movies that I had missed somehow. That kind of is like one of those things where you see a movie, you're like, I don't know what I was doing with myself before seeing this because it suits me so well. I was thrilled to have seen them, and then I saw Before Midnight, having no idea what it was about. The whole mystery leading up to it is nobody really knew if if they would be together, if how they would be reunited, what had happened at the end of Before Sunset when he missed his flight. Um, so we got to kind of go into this movie, kind of discovering where the the state of these characters were. And it kind of blew me away over and over again to watch this relationship develop, to watch how these characters had changed, to watch these amazing conversations. And, you know, these movies have been based on conversations, but this time the big showpiece is this fight that they have and the way that that fight ebbs and flows and kind of rises and falls and seems to be over and seems to not be over. It felt so authentic, but at the same time, so well-written and so funny. And I, promise not to pull this card too often but as someone about to get married it really felt 
it hit home to me. Maybe this is a Dave style entry on my list. I know, so boring. Um, but it did feel truer to me maybe now than it would otherwise, just about what it means to spend your entire life with somebody, even for these characters who we had seen, who seem to have kind of an idealized relationship. Like everyone wants to walk down the street and be having conversations like Selena and Jesse did in the last two movies. And to watch where those conversations have led them at this point in their lives is sad and funny and so incredibly well-crafted. It was a really... I mean, I realized that the right way to have seen these movies is in the time that they came out and to have spent that distance of time wondering what happened to them. But I was so grateful to have caught up with it and then saw Before Midnight not knowing where the where they were going to be at the beginning of it. And then to, uh, I don't know, get to catch up on something that I had drastically overlooked like an idiot for so long. Wow, that's... Like three movies in one spot. I know. I, know. I'm, I'm gonna let you I get recommend away the yourself. sun, the sunset trilogy, sunrise trilogy, however we call it. I think before might the before be the trilogy. Common, okay. Before trilogy. <laughs> okay, David, don't judge me too hard. It's too what, late. What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I was just I was listening to you talk about before midnight, and I was just drifting away. And the the beautiful you were on your way to Greece, hearing hearing amazing words said about such an amazing mm. film. Well, Patches is number four. We've actually talked about in the second episode of Fighting in the War Room. Uh, Patches, do you want to unveil your your documentary? My unveiling. Yeah, I'm sure other people have this on this list, although I haven't revisited either Katie or David's list, published list recently. Uh, I went with The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer, a documentary that, you know, I was just scanning movies from this past year and, and... I, I want gut reactions. I want I want something to really hit me hard and and move me. And I think my, I wanted to vomit after seeing the act of killing, like, like I really the character, just to go home or like the main subject, curl up in a ball and vomit. Yeah, I guess yeah. he does do a little Retching. bit of vomiting. Um, I mean, I just thought this was an astonishing movie, mostly because I don't know much about the topic, um, and I was fascinated by seeing it through the eyes of the perpetrators here of of these people, these gangsters, Anwar Congo. Um, these just I, I I couldn't even fathom what was going on. The amount of people they killed in Indonesia in, in the mid '60s, and just hearing them talk about it and seeing this culture be preserved over the decades, and just with without any no no one is brought to justice. You know, Wolf of Wall Street. I I want to get back at all those those bad financiers and stockbrokers and. People stealing money, but here is just like complete devastation that seems to have gone unpunished. And Oppenheimer is really able to embed himself and obviously put it through the lens of these people by recreating scenes and just seeing the joy that they have, the appreciation of these crimes. Just the glee in Act of Killing is is so unnerving. It's an emotion that I feel like I've, I've rarely felt in other films um, because what what kind of stars can align to allow you to do that? There's really nothing like what we've seen uh, Anwar Congo do and speak about in The Act of Killing and then to see him reflect on it and go so far into his own past that he cuts through the bullshit that these people are living out in Indonesia and really confronts himself, these ghosts of his past. I mean – it's it's haunting and and into the final moments you just want to vomit and that's what we want out of a great movie. Vomit, brilliant, always vomit. vomiting, more vomiting. All right, we're down to number three. Um, interestingly, I'm the only one who didn't put this movie at number three. So <laughs> really, 
I have it at number two, wow. so I don't know how we're going to go it. But let's let's all talk about Inside Lewin Davis. Well, uh, well, I think that it is appropriate for Lewin Davis, the character, that he yeah, not number be three, number one. Yeah, he's not number ones on any. Not even number two. Not even number two. No, he's number two on Dave. I think yeah, he's at number two oh. on me, but I, I'm really big in seeing to uh, yeah, you're endless in failure stuff. cycles. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would he would want it this way, and I do think that um, Lewin Davis is one of those films that uh, will probably. I'm not sure if I can speak for everybody, but I can certainly speak for myself on this. Will only grow in my estimation over time. I've already seen it twice. Uh, I really think it's one of the Coen Brothers' best films, and I would not be surprised if I, you know, I think at this point. They're all movies that I, I just love so much that, you know, I think three is as much of a validation as number one. Does anybody have anything special they want to add to that they didn't get to say on their review a few weeks ago to Inside Lou and I guess the, the growing in estimation thing I think is really dead on because I saw this movie with some people who really weren't that into it and I was kind of talking to them after and trying to defend it and like listening to their point of view and like wondering if maybe I agreed with them. And then I kept thinking about it and kept thinking about it. And I think living in New York really helps this movie linger in my brain. Like every time I walk down the street with my hands jammed in my coat pockets, I think about Lou and Davis. And the movie just really has a way of worming its way into you. I mean, their music is part of it and the atmosphere of it and there's just so many little things it's such an episodic movie so there are parts that you think about later that you appreciate more the second time around and i uh watched i've seen it twice and then my family was watching it over christmas and they were like i was bustling around the house but yeah there's so much to it it's such a rich movie it's so funny and sad and so specific to the atmosphere of the place where it's set and I don't have a good answer for why I care about Lewin Davis I think I've talked to some people who don't like it that much because he's an asshole as Carrie Mulligan tells him but I find him such a compelling character and I find his world so compelling and I did maybe the only answer why is that the Coen brothers are really great storytellers and Oscar Isaac's a really great actor maybe that's enough well I mean I think he's really relatable at least to me as as a creative person who doesn't want to compromise themselves and and knows their fair share of, of failure, you, you identify with Lewin Davis. He doesn't want to take bullshit, and that means you are kind of a sourpuss. <laughs> uh, if you're a real artist, if you're really that – I mean if that's the track you're on, there are a lot of people who are analytical and you know always want to make the right decision that's going to preserve their life or improve it, um, and people – artists can't do that. Um, and I think it's a really frank portrait of that existence and how how it can life can torment you when you all just want one thing in this world or want to be able to achieve something great or want to put yourself out there and have people accept it. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be nice. It can be very funny, but you're going to be an unpleasant person sometimes. And I think I can really identify that. And obviously, the whole package is a be- it's a beautiful looking movie. It's a beautiful sounding movie. Um, because the art does get to emerge. His his talents do prevail in some minor moments, but they're quick to be defeated. And um, I, I'm, I'm sad that there are people out there who think this movie is really, I don't know, down on its luck, or it's just a sad movie. It's about mean people. Um, well, it is a movie I about... I don't think they're really giving themselves over to the possibility of that lifestyle. And uh, I think I would wa- I want to show people inside Lewin Davis to better understand what it's like to be on that track. Mm. I mean, it is a movie about failure, which is, does make it a downer, but it's a really interesting movie about failure. I mean, you would hope that people want to at least observe that in some way. I mean, there's going to be people who just don't want to see movies about sadness. Some people don't want to see movies about slavery. 
for example. Yeah. You know what? Because maybe that's boring to some people. <laughs> but I will say this. if the Inside Lewin Davis is nice because, like, if you're shooting to be a superstar, the worst you could do is land in Lewin Davis. And that seemed like a, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily self-actualize, but you get the feeling that even if he did, he might not change the way that he was doing things. And I, I sort of like that. Something about the creative spirit living on, even though it just constantly gets trampled on. I don't know if I saw that as selfish as much as I saw that as inspiring. Mm. I don't know, because I don't think he really hurts anyone. Well. Anyways, we could have much more conversation about Inside Lewin Davis, but we should move on to my number three pick, which is Before Midnight. Did not put Inside Lewin Davis there, but basically everything everybody said, everybody being Katie. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm the only one who's talked about it so far. But yeah. David's love for Before Midnight exudes over That's all. That's true. It, yes. We, we've been talking about it all year because it was instantly a movie that uh, I think it just came right out of the gate as it's sort of this weird trilogy capper and something that was just as honest about relationships but so distanced from the rom-com-ish you know, uh, moment of falling deep in love with a person. And I really enjoyed the analyzing of what happens when two people, you know, live real lives. And I think it's really, even in movies, when we get sequels, we've never had something like this where it feels like all the time in between movies has actually been lived in, but I didn't need to see it to know what it was because it's just all in the performances in the movie. So I liked it a lot for midnight. That's it. We're done with the number threes. Man, you are, you are efficient right now. Well, you know, I'm trying to make sure that people We're can listen to this. We're running the finishing line. Yeah. One one commute, if at all possible. <laughs> Maybe not. That's probably impossible. Number two, David Ehrlich. Uh, yeah, my number two film is The Wind Rises. Uh, I I really uh, – I feel like I'm going to say the same thing for my number one, but I'm, I'm a bit hawked out of, uh, of this movie. Um, I have been really – uh, saddened by some of the con, the the really asinine controversy that's come up around this film. That I think, uh, you know, it, it's it's this is a much less condescending to say when you're not talking about particular people. And so I think that I'm not talking about particular people here when I say that. You know, I think it's a lot easier to clamor for morally compact, complex films than it is to appreciate them and not all films that are morally complex deserve to be celebrated or appreciated but this is one that certainly is i think it is uh it's it's you know i I, as i referred to earlier in the show um and i don't really want to dive too deep into the argument that has come up that it is somehow uh absolves japan of their war crimes and whatnot and that miyazaki who is an avowed uh anti-war figure and that certainly applies to japan's actions as well uh, is, you know, in any way perpetuating myths or, or not confronting the country's legacy or anything like that. Uh, it's a bit silly, but I do think that the arguments, anyone that finds himself defending the Wolf of Wall Street as uh, not endorsing the but actions of Jordan Belfort yeah. is, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. is on the same page. Yeah, David, ta- well, you're so I, defensive. I, I, well, I, I don't mean to be so defensive. The only reason I went to that uh, first is because I feel like I've spoken and raved like a lunatic about the movie on the show at least once beforehand, if not twice. I have a review with uh, hi- you know hyperbole that I stand behind that it says that it's maybe the greatest animated film ever made, and I uh, at least why. 
in my limited i've talked about it before i mean i it's, we've talked about it so much i mean it's such a you talked about it just you know 20 minutes ago on the show and i echo everything you said where um, that was 20 minutes ago <laughs> that's really what i wanted i wanted the vindication I, i'm sorry I, I didn't i didn't feel uh, overwhelmingly uh, that I needed to explain why yeah. I love this movie. Again. It's at the number two spot. What more do you want? Yeah, patches? it's uh, go. I, I think it's it's a really incredible movie. I think it's it's as great a final movie as any filmmaker of his stature, of Miyazaki's stature, has ever given us. Uh, I think it's uh, such a beautiful portrait on what's important to people in this world and how sort of the artistic my view works. The concessions we have to make. I think it does make an interesting, although obviously not one to one direct. Like uh, companion piece to something like Twelve Years a Slave, where you look at sort of the moral concessions that have to be made, but also how responsible are you for the way that people are going to misconstrue what you contribute to the world? Uh, I think the when it pivots into melodrama, as Patch has mentioned in uh, Jiro's short-lived relationship with his wife, it is. Uh, Obviously, knowing that it is making a really sharp, dramatic pivot into this entirely different kind of storytelling, but it's such a perfect encapsulation of all of his neuroses and such a great expression of all, all these things that people accuse the movie of not celebrating, I think, are, or, or addressing are very cleanly presented in those parts where Jiro is uh, having this little love affair and, and sort of absconding from the world. Right, and he's dealing with all these things by avoiding them because he can't necessarily wrap his head around uh, how something as pure and beautiful as his dreams of, of aviation and creating these beautiful aircrafts has been perverted and destroyed by their ultimate utility. Um, I really wish that more people had the chance, more people had the chance to see this in Japanese because unlike all of Miyazaki's other films, this is actually set in uh, historically specific Japan. This is not Spirited Away, which starts in Japan, but could be anywhere and then goes into a magical kingdom or, or certainly uh, Porco Rosso, which is in Japanese, but takes place in the Mediterranean or his other films, which take place in fantasy worlds. This is a movie in Japan and it's silly. I mean, it so confronts Japanese identity and whatnot. It's silly to have English voices dubbed. Uh, I don't think it's going to be such a big money earner anyway, even with Matt Damon and or whomever they got to get to do it. Werner Herzog is going to play Matt in German, Damon. which will be interesting. But uh, yeah, I think that this is the one film that really needs to be seen in Japanese. It will be released in February, dubbed in English. I'm sure it'll still be great, but if you get the Blu-ray later on next year, I'd encourage you to watch it in the original language track. Uh, I love this movie to pieces. I think the the correct thing to say is this is one of the many movies I'm going to tell you to see in the original Japanese. But that's... That's good. That's good. I'm I'm a fan of uh, watching things in the original languages for nuance. Yes, nuance. Anyway... My number two is Inside Lewin Davis, because no matter what I do, I can't move out of Bed-Stuy. Katie, your number two. Um, I have no good follow-up for that. My number two is Stories We Tell. I am majorly in the tank for Sarah Polly, as has been clear. Take the Swallows was on my top ten last year. Um, Stories We Tell is a documentary, but kind of also not a documentary, but mostly a documentary. It's this investigation into a story about Sarah Polly's own family and story about her mother who passed away when she was about 11, when Sarah Polly was 11, not Sarah Polly's mother. Um, and kind of the true story behind her parents and her own childhood and her own family tree. And it's, there's a lot of surprises intact in it, both in the story that she uncovers and the way that the film is made. And it, but it's the tone of the movie that really sticks with me, the way that it's warm and curious and not judgmental and kind of invites all of these people. She kind of, you know, she calls her family members and family friends, storytellers and invites these people to really express themselves on camera. And the, the fact that the person making it is at the center of the story, but really 
in a way removes herself from it and is kind of investigating her own life through talking to these other people about it as if she were just a neutral observer. Um, there's a lot of different, I've seen it a couple times every time there's kind of a new angle to take on it. It's just such an interesting, odd little movie. And the, I love that she was curious enough to make it and make it in the way that she did. And that Sarah Polly, every movie she's made is really different from the last one, but they all kind of seem to exist in the same world in which people are curious and thoughtful and not necessarily cruel. And if they are cruel, they try, they have their reasons for doing it. I don't know. She's such an interesting filmmaker to watch. This was really close to being on my list. If if zero charisma wasn't about nerddom, <laughs> it would it might have taken the top ten. I'm spot. curious about uh, about your take on it, then, because you are not as in the tank for Sarah Polly as I am. No, but there's just something about trying to have an honest conversation with your family, and then also sharing that with everybody, and the way they sort of split that um, footage wise. It just it really wrapped me up in it. Um, I don't know. The reveal at the end really got me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I could say that you didn't say. It, I do find it, it was... hard to be eloquent about this movie. I can't really even pinpoint what it is that hits me so much about it, but I know that that's happened for a lot of other people, so at least I'm not crazy. I've made the mistake of trying to pitch this to people by actually telling them what the story is. No, don't work. do that at so, all. I I mean, I'm, I'm, I talk to different people, in <laughs> but Stories We Tell is definitely excellent, and I would uh, put my recommendation behind Katie's. But the not Dave on my list. Seven stamp of approval. That's right. That's on the DVD cover. Yeah, there's a certain movie that isn't getting that stamp of approval. It's popping up on people's oh, lists. But you know what wow. that is. Oh my god, Mr. Patches, number two. Number two, uh, Spring Break. Whoa! Forever. Wow. Uh, you're surprised? I don't know. I guess oh. I didn't realize that you were so uh, into that movie. Well, it's funny hearing you describe how like disgusting you felt and how you wanted to like get out of the theater after seeing <laughs> Spring Breakers. I'm like, that's exact. I love that feeling. Like, <laughs> I f- I love feeling disgusted and just like, well, that the comedy was my number one movie of last that's year. That's true. And I and this kind of reminds me of the comedy. It's just foul and and all like just depicting the awfulness of of reality that I have to step back into later. Um, but that also feels. It's not like big picture reality to me. It's kind of this like small emerging thing that's like bubbling at the core of a certain – of my generation, a younger generation, and, and even older generations. You know, Certainly the, the ad execs and the, the music execs, the entertainment people at the top are, are fanning the fire that kind of births the disgustingness on display in Spring Breakers. Um, I, I, when I saw it – I, I really thought it was a um, Britney Spears biopic, basically. Yeah. It's about and, – and then I saw Richard Kelly tweet that, and I thought, damn. She stole your thoughts. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, it's about innocence loss. It's about selling out. It's about being manufactured, which is exactly what Britney Spears – you know, the other day I watched Work Bitch, the new Britney Spears song and video. Um, and God damn it. I mean, she is a product. Uh, Jody Rosen of New York Magazine said it best that this album is, is even worse because she tries to not be a product. But Work Bitch is good because she's still just like a doll in that movie. Um, but there was a glimmer of hope for Britney at, early in her career where she was an actual person, um, I think. And then mm. she went through the machine. I mean, there was just hope. Did, I'm, read, talking, uh... I'm talking like Mickey Mouse Club, okay? Oh, not talking, oh, okay. I'm not Maybe. talking Oops, I Did It Again. Oops, I Did It Again is go, getting on the bus to Miami and Spring Breakers. Yeah. Right. Um, this is complete loss. And uh, I mean, by having an actual Britney 
musical number in the movie. I think it is pretty on the nose. But again, like how things can exist, like Miley Cyrus's, uh, you know, we can't stop. Just like what partying is to youth culture and what it um, ideals are. I think Spring Breakers just boils it down, and it's it's perfectly executed. Um, as you said, David James Franco gets this movie. It's not just that he's good. It's not just that he's playing a crazy character, but he understands the fabric of this movie and can weave the perfect thread into it. Um, and he's working on another level. I mean, it just is hilarious and it's subversive and it's terrifying um, and it's violent and it's horrific and it just escalates in the best way. Um, and I saw this movie all the way back at Toronto last year and it stuck with me. I saw it again in theaters when it came out. Brought some friends. They all hated it. <laughs> I loved it again. Um, I just, I think this movie is a blast, and I think it's a big F you to all of us, not just the people who seem to be immersed in this culture that it's, it's reflecting, the youth of today perhaps, but all of us are contributing to the problems that, uh, that Spring Breakers kind of sheds light on. So I loved it. Excellent. All right. Well, where I usually le- read everybody's lists back, uh, we're going to save some time and just say, go to fightinginthewarroom.com, where we're posting all the lists. If you've been playing along, there's no more surprises left. Go play along with the number ones, because David's number one is... Uh, Before Midnight. Hey! What fanfare? Didn't make my list. What? What kind of monster <laughs> yeah. are you, Patches? You don't believe Did in Wolf love? Did Wall Street make your list? No. Was that... No. That's a shame. Mm-hmm. Patches uh, has the least uh, amount of overlap between all of us. It's us, just I think. hearing you talk about movies that that you uh, you like leaving a movie feeling dirty, and That's especially true. knowing you know how I did. How, but I think uh, the breadth of Wolf of Wall Street took its toll on me a little bit. How saccharine, sweet, and uh, harmless your number one is. I think that it's it's unfortunate <laughs> that your actual list doesn't play out in that respect. Anyway, before me, <laughs> uh, speaking of, of movies that I really have nothing more. To say about I think it's come up in like five different episodes this year. Uh, my colleague spoke very well of it earlier in the episode. Uh, I was, you know, I I was blown away by this movie. It I was so happy that um, I was able to stay spoiler. I've never cared about staying spoiler free for a movie the way I did about this. I was really uh, on the war path because after nine years of waiting, when even the the premise of the movie itself would have answered such fundamental questions that you know i wanted to be answered by the filmmakers in the film um i was so so uh, cautious coming out of sundance and I, when i saw it i was just uh, those characters and and all the emotions and all of their sort of attendant effects on me and how everything about them Echoes with such like a, a personal feeling, not because I relate, but because it feels like it actually has an impact on my life and the decisions that I make. As if the resolutions and the things that they learn from these movies by interacting with one another uh, are are going to answer pivotal questions for me, or or you know, I, I, it just feels like the stakes are higher, um, and not just because it's the third film in a trilogy that is more or less happening in in real time. And uh, I thought that the choices you always people always get so afraid i think there's only been two inst- uh, sequels to this but i feel like when the second one came out they're like oh no they're gonna ruin it and then it was perfect and then this <laughs> one people were like oh no how are they possibly going to not poison what they had and it's perfect again and you're like well i can't imagine where they would take another uh, installment of this but if they do they will certainly have my faith um but and this one was definitely the most problematic in in a way that's not 
a knock against the movie, but it's the most complex. I mean, the first two are really fantasies in some way. Uh, and this one is sort of the come down. It's a bit of a reality. Uh, they are dealing with uh, things that exist outside of that. that the very, the very real uh, situation of blending your life with somebody else's and what happens when your life is no longer only your own. And you see that in relationships and, and relationships that spawn families. And, uh, and it's not just, um, it's not just about the sort of self-contained thing and your hopes and, and aspirations and fantasies for the future that we saw in the previous two. And so, uh, I was very torn up about the last 30 minutes of this movie when they have this blowout fight that sort of, uh, Bridges the gap from journey to Italy to scenes for marriage by you know sort of echoing the Godard film contempt, uh, and you don't want to see these characters you love at each other's throats. And then when it resolves, you I was I remember you know being astonished the first time I saw it, but also being a little bit uh, I don't know not, not, I, I, it was not sitting so well with me that I felt. Like Celine became an antagonist in a film series that has always done so well to make sure these characters are evenly matched. And seeing the film again and then again and then again and thinking about it and listening to the commentary and talking about it with other people, I realized that that's actually – that's not what's happening at all and that Ethan Hawke's character, Jesse, is really conflating calm with being rational and that I realized that why – Celine was giving up a little bit of ground at the end to sort of win the war um, and how the, the final resolution, which was really stuck with me about the uh, their value in each other's lives, which was not this sort of twee idea of like, oh, you know, you're important to me and I'm important to you. and But, but really just the utility of each other and how uh, once the fantasy has subsided that there's a practical value in them being there for each other, that monogamy might be a construct, but that it's one that has uh, – and it may not work for, for everybody and is not being insisted upon is the only way of doing it but they see that the extent to which they can help one another through the sort of minefield that is that is, their lives together and, I, and why there's an upside to blending you, well, lives. i wanted yeah. to jump in because what like what i like so much about that ending and where it does like where there's a giving in there's a denouement it, it's that there's a choice that's made like you kind of watch this conversation and you happen and you watch one of them start to play a game and you watch the other one choose whether or not to play the game and that's kind of what the entire thing is. It's choosing over and over again to play the game, to stick with someone, to kind of share in this illusion that it makes sense to completely enmesh your life in somebody. And I loved the depiction of just making that choice that's kind of involves losing sometimes and involves giving up and compromising, but that that choice is one that's worth making basically every day. And no matter how hard it is, mm. it was a, a really moving ending. Yeah, I think I like what I like what you just said a lot, and that the idea that like every day, it's not just it's not just that you know the the curtains close and the credits start and it's sort of cemented in this bond, but that every day they have to make the mutual decision, the choice to continue on this dynamic yeah. uh, and reap both the you know the benefits and the the drawbacks from that, um, and hoping the former outweigh the latter. And I think it's so beautifully honest in how it's depicted and, uh, and hopeful in a way, but also very sober in how it looks to the future. And it just, it completely gutted me in a way that I felt. And I, I really, I would be saying this even, even if I knew it was not going to be coming up in a minute, but in a way that a film like her felt really pat and easy, uh, this really sort of confronted the, the reality of, of being an adult with another adult for me and uh, and will be resonating with me, I'm sure, I, for at least the next nine years. I will respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll I, I, I did want to say that um, I think 
Before Midnight is a beautiful, wonderful, uh, gut-wrenching film, and I left it off my list mostly because I knew the three Despite would me. put it on. <laughs> for, seriously. All right. Well, my number one is something we've already talked about, which is Stoker. And it's hard for me. It's one of those things that was floating in my list where I'm like, definitely, this is one of my top ten films of the year. And then it just kind of got pushed to the top. So now I have to uh, deal with the fact that inside me might be a sadomasochistic serial killer. Teenager. Or, at least a, or large... a spider. Maybe you have a spider up your uh, vagina. But... Yeah. But, my vagina. But, but uh, yeah, you know, there's uh, there's something to be said about Park Chan-wook's sort of lyrical um, study of this girl coming of age with some darkness around her. And then when she finally decides to embrace that darkness for herself, um, like, I don't know, like somebody said, I wish this film did better because it's just so rare to see something dealt with this way. And that you kind of want to go out and talk about it, or you don't want the experience to end by the time the movies end, which is why Patches and Katie got red wine, and I bought a leather belt, um, <laughs> just to keep Stoker around. Uh, but for the piano scene alone, if you if you can watch that and not want to see Stoker, then I don't know, we like different movies. Like Stoker. Katie. Oh my god. One. My number one is 12 Years a Slave. I kind of tried not to make it the number one because it's like oh it's the obvious choice it's the very dramatic movie about slavery but i walked out of this movie feeling different i was like looking at the world and i couldn't really understand what was around me and it's not lavar burton is weeping right now what did, wait, what did i do to lavar burton nothing <laughs> okay um i i agree a lot with what david said it's not about learning that slavery was bad it's learning about the people who were inside it it's a it's kind of like saying that you don't need to see titanic because you know that it was sad that a ship sank it's about the experience you're given once it's inside it it's this journey into this place that was real and that is really hard to understand from a distance it's not we're not as far away from slavery as we think we are, and the people who were in it are not as different as we think they are. And not, it's not just learning that slave owners were human beings, but the ways in which they were humans and the ways that they were driven by fear more than anything. I think Michael Fassbender's performance is so interesting because you see how he's this horrible person who's driven mostly by fear of himself. He's attracted to one of his slaves. He's terrified of that fact. He rapes her and beats her up as a result of it, and he's really cruel to all the people around him as a result of it. And they're all part of a system that, like David was saying, it's completely man-made, it's completely arbitrary in a way, but they're all people who matter to you in the experience of watching this movie. Chotel Ejiofor has this really, really hard job of playing the hero, and he's a guy who really wants to get home. That's really the entire purpose of him, and he's kind of your avatar for being dragged into this hellish landscape. But he becomes a person, and he's got pride, and he can't hold his tongue, and he, you watch kind of the soul drift out of his eyes, and not in a typical, like, caged dog, someone who's being abused, but in this very specific way of someone who's seeing all of these little things that make him see the world in a different way. It's just the specifics of it and the preciseness of it and the way that Stephen Queen doesn't want to hold your hand and doesn't want to instruct you on all the ways in which what you're seeing is wrong. and doesn't really want to give you a broader perspective of what was happening. You kind of assumes you can fill in the blanks. I mean, you get like a slave auction that's not on some giant block in a middle of a courtyard, but it's in a house with a, you know, people playing the violin, like all this weird little subculture world. It's a, it's specific about the place that it's set, which is something that was harder. I, I didn't expect as much and seems harder to depict than you would imagine for a place that's been so kind of demonized in our imaginations, but not ever really depicted this well. 
I will say this in that I made my top 10 list uh, very personal as a way of keeping 12 Years a Slave off of it because I think it's a brilliantly executed movie and the cinematography is great and the performances are great and the emotional beats even worked for me. It's just whatever hooked you, Katie, didn't hook me. But I could look at it as a piece of cinema that is definitely worthwhile. And I, I can bad talk it, and maybe we'll get to that in a future episode and actually have a throwdown. But it is a fantastic film. Oh, see? A happy ending. What? <laughs> I want to save that so people listen all the way to the number ones. It's, we're called Fighting in the War. Hey. Good Lord. More Anybody fighting. else on 12 Years a Slave before we pretend mm. I didn't say that and maybe fight about it later? I thought everything was well put. Excellent. Patches. Number one. Yes. Um, the film that defines our year. Uh, Shia LaBeouf's Howard Cantor. <laughs> yes. Oh, wait, no. Thank um, you for listening, everybody. This has been Fighting in the War. And good night. Uh, I went with Spike Jones's Her, a movie that really is not out yet for most people. Really? So I'm not sure. I, I, I won't. Yeah, it's only played very briefly for like its oscar run and oh i thought it was know, at least limited it, theater, so okay it, but it's... it really comes out in january wide so gotta be careful um but you know I, I can understand why this movie might be a little thin for people or or feel a little um contrived but for me her as much as it is a, a futurist portrait of of relationships it's it's not really about a man falling in love with a cell phone or his operating system. Uh, it's it's a movie about recoiling into the perfect person or the per the person we see as just being easy. It's the easy choice in a relationship, and I found it to be really poignant um, about how relationships don't work and where we go, where we rebound to, and um, how people and friends close to us can uh, help us land in that comfort zone or how they can contend with that with that decision and we don't listen um just about finding i mean the the embodiment of perfection will be artificial intelligence um i think we could all agree with that as people who use technology um they'll they'll truly pass us in their in their knowledge and their ability to respond to problems and what better way to embody the perfect relationship um I think Joaquin Phoenix is is brilliant as just a guy who can fall for this. Um, maybe it's maybe it's a charade. Maybe it's maybe it's false, but maybe it's real. Um, it's but what it is is it's perfection, and it's easy to slip into that. What oh, okay. Are you I'm sorry. I, I'm not talking about the I, movie. I'm not, I, and I realized that as soon as I laugh. As soon as so you stop, I, re I, re I retract that laugh. I'm not saying her is perfection. I, I you are formally, an asshole. <laughs> I am formally retracting that laugh. Well, if this comes out in January, it sounds like we might be talking about it in the future. We will. I would imagine. Especially I, if it's number one. I, I do want to say that I think Scarlett Johansson is, is the right casting for this so kind good. of voice that just seems... She's ideal. Everything is ideal about this Samantha voice, this character who can solve all of our problems and can we can see drift away and, and become greater than us. You know, we can lose the comfort of perfection. And, and that is crazy. Like, how could this ever be ruined? This is supposed to be perfect. Um, and that feeling, I think Jones is able to to find a groove into those, uh, you know, it's organic. As much as this is about technology, these are organic evolutions um, in the relationship between Theodore and his uh, his OS. And I, I was swept up in it. I mean, 
I don't know if I love this movie as much as I do Eternal Sunshine, um, which I'm sure it'll get compared to over the years, but maybe I'll come to love it that much. I just as, – as, as a science fiction person who, or who finds uh, ways into emotion through kind of fantastical storytelling, I appreciated it, but I was astounded by its honesty uh, and the honest betrayal of a relationship, so – her. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a very good movie, and I don't want my uh, scoffing to suggest a loud, otherwise. obnoxious I... scoff in the middle <laughs> of my explanation uh, defines I, our relationship. And, and I, I wrote a, a nice review of it. I've just been struggling to figure out why I it didn't really rings, it didn't really connect with me in the know. way that it seems to do with other people. And I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I find the Theodore Twombly oh. character to be uh, just, you know. I just there's nothing interesting to me about him. I think that he is a third tier sad sack. But the problem uh, is, I, no, I don't think a he's harsh, a sad sack. I think he's just, I think he's just like a normal guy. I mean, I don't think but most not. people. Like, I, I don't think most he, people really gentlemen. have a lot of defining features. All right, we, can, we can talk about this. <laughs> we, on the, we have uh, not reviewed think, this movie yet. <laughs> all right, but I think uh, it's it's a lot of those things are sort of a, a paler version of Eternal Sunshine, which I think is a brilliant movie, and, and so much uh, yeah, it's so much more of an effect on me. Than, but I, I mean, this did, and I really feel like the end of this movie really sort of just you know it arrives nowhere and just sort of lets the air out. Um, I, I don't know. There were some ah, things I that disagree. Just me, of course, I me the do wrong way. I thought that the I thought that the ideas were very strong. I just don't think that they, and I think that patches tapped into them very nicely i just don't think that they were explored in an especially compelling way for me but we can talk about it in more detail in we are different people (laughs) imagine that well unless anybody has anything especially special to add Here's what I'm going to do to you, dear listener. Please go to fightinginthewarroom.com slash top10 2013. You will find our lists, links to episodes that we review it on, where everybody can be found on Twitter, their current outlet, and in the case of David, his top 10 video, Katie's top 10 list at Vanity Fair. Everything to save you the trouble of goodbyes because you have held on for our entire Top 10 2013 episode, and we will be back in 2014 with more fighting in the war room.